Hello, and welcome to the Brothers in Armchairs podcast. We are three friends brought together through our years of military service who share a common interest in movies and pop culture. I'm your host, Kenny, and with me always are my brothers, Arnez and Del. Hello. Aloha. This is our 10th episode of our bi-weekly show. Let's take a quick second and talk about the ride so far, fellas. Well, I have to say for the 10th episode, it, I can say for me, I've gotten comfortable and I'm really enjoying it. 10, 10 of our flagship episodes is pretty awesome. I remember when we, uh, when we started talking about this two and a half years ago, and then ultimately finally decided to rip that mandate off and go ahead and, and record a podcast. And we spent hours and hours in preparing for it. Then we recorded it and it stunk, which is, again, <laughs> it is the reason why we do not have episode one loaded up. Maybe if enough people ask for it, we might embarrass ourselves by making it available, <laughs> but it was horrible. And thankfully, none of us wanted to quit. We wanted to keep pushing on. And as we pushed on and as we seemingly got better at what we're doing, ideas start to pop in your head and you can bring those ideas to light. And I think in that regard, it's really cool to be on that side of the fence, to be responsible for producing, writing, and then, you know, editing a show. And, you know, for what it is, it, it's, it's great. I mean, it's been really fun, guys. I've really enjoyed the ride. I also have enjoyed the ride. Uh, this for me is a dream come true. This is a little bit of uh, wish fulfillment for me. I've been wanting to do a podcast for a very, very long time. So when we made the decision that we were going to do it, even though our episode one didn't see the light of day, it was still quite the accomplishment. And I felt super achieved at that point. I was like, oh, we did it. We made a podcast. And then we were like, but it stinks. So we're not going to load it up. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we went back to the batting cages. We we started practicing and uh, we felt it out episode number two. We felt pretty good about it. We've gotten pretty good at the writing aspect of it, I think. You know, the editing is getting better and I, I feel like we're still novices at the game, but, you know, the game has become a lot of fun and I think I look forward to watching movies with you guys all the time. I'll say that uh, both of you have pushed me out of my comfort zone. You can both have recommended movies I would never watch on my own. So I was like... <laughs> So, you know, I think I think yeah. of the three of us, Arnez is the only one that has no like comfort zone. Like he's in everything. Yeah, I agree with that. He'll watch oh. anything. He's like, Mikey likes it. Look, he watches anything. <laughs> no, what's in nineteen seventeen? I watch it, but <laughs> I'm just saying though, you're like you're like Mikey from Life Serial, man. You just do you just watch anything, you know? <laughs> but you never know. It's been good, though. You guys have made me watch movies uh, that I absolutely would not have watched for sake of this program, which is pretty cool. You guys remember how we were trying to sell ourselves, like really hype ourselves up that episode one was good? Yeah, I remember. (laughs) We were trying. I I was the one that was trying the hardest. No, it's fine, guys. Let's just release it. Let's just release it. Yeah, we wouldn't have the 20 listeners we have today if we released it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) But I still stand by the fact that Hunt's a good movie. So (laughs) good movie. Just, Ooh, that was rough. For our 10th show, we're going to start off by continuing a discussion that started at the end of our eighth episode, Choice Overload 2. Then we'll discuss the nine films from 2019 in our feature presentation. And then I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone that is participating in the best worst movie challenge that's being held on our Facebook page. It's been a lot of fun to see everyone's comments as we go through this. I have to admit, some of these movies are real duds, but I enjoy reading everyone's comments. So keep voting. Uh, I like when people are supporting bad movies. <laughs> keep voting and uh, maybe we mm-hmm. can convince Dell that we should do a podcasting episode of the winner. But until that oh. time, just keep voting. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, before we get started, please hit the subscribe button and give us a review. 
we've heard subscribing to our podcast gives the listener magical powers. Okay, so at the end of Choice Overload 2, I had commented that we, as movie reviewers, might be getting a little soft because the quality of many new films available on stream or direct to VOD are less than quality films. I mean, let's be real, guys. I mean, I love, I love Extraction, but that's a maybe $100 million movie max in the movie theater. Like, it's, not, it's not Avengers Endgame. I traveled down the rabbit hole looking for a multitude of films from 2019 that didn't do well in theaters. Specifically, I was looking at the movies that were overlooked or weren't box office success. My lingering thought was, are the relatively unsuccessful theater movies of 2019 better or worse than the streamers we're getting in 2020? So I went through all of the movies of 2019 looking for trends. I looked for movies that were critical successes, but didn't have box office success. I looked for movies that had audience success, box office success being the pinnacle of what I was looking at, because in order for a movie in a theater to be considered successful, it has to earn its money back plus be able to turn a profit. So many of the movies that I selected didn't do any of those things. None of these movies are movies that made, you know, $100 million or $150 million, but didn't achieve expectations. So this isn't like Batman and Robin, where, you know, Batman and Robin, by all accounts, is a monetary success. The movie made $219 million, cost $100 million to make, So it earned its money back plus a profit, even though everybody in the world says that movie sucks, but it's still considered, you know, successful in the theater. What I was looking at was 2019 movies that didn't do well in the theater. Are they better or worse than the streaming content we're getting in 2020? Is there something to be said for a movie that gets released in theaters? Is it better vetted? Is it a better film and just goes in that direction? So what we did is we lined up the movies. I think there were approximately 36 movies on my list. Of the 36 movies, we just went through a draft. Each one of us got to pick one of these movies. So while we probably haven't seen the films that we're going to talk about, not necessarily our fault if they stink, uh, but I will tell you that we did pick them. If they do stink, then yeah, it's kind of our fault. But yeah, like anything else in these choice overload type of episodes, we don't know what we're going to watch beforehand. So we just pick them and we go with it. No, I think, I think... I think that list and having to draft from that list was a really fun thing for us to do. It's kind of like I, there was a couple movies that were on there I wanted, but, you know, Arnez would pick them first. So it was pretty, it was pretty neat. It was like fantasy football for stinker movies of 2019. <laughs> or I shouldn't say stinker movies. I should say movies that potentially is worthy of your attention. I have to say, I, I agree with that. I, I did like the picking them out. We did kind of do a fantasy football of picking a choice out there and that was fun. But we all were good sports about it and, you know, let someone else maybe have a movie that we would have wanted to watch and review there. But uh, I think overall it should be some uh, good talking points. Of the movies that we all selected or the movies that were on the list, were there any that you had never even heard of? Were there ones that you guys had never heard of at all? For me, I've heard of them, but just... I think I've seen previews on majority of them there, but the preview wasn't enough to get me to watch it at the time, probably. No, there were a few on that list that I had never heard of before. And, you know, that's that's part that's a large part in my fault, because 2019, I wasn't watching a lot of movies. I had really no incentive to do so, nor did I have time. But obviously, I need to watch movies now for my current hobby of podcasting. So looking <laughs> at that list, it was interesting. And the movies I picked, I I'd never heard of Motherless Brooklyn. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I'll tell you that I had heard of all the movies. There wasn't anything on the list that surprised me, which I think is a little bit of an advantage than the streamers, just because of the fact that the streamers kind of outnumber the movie theaters, right? So when a movie comes out on stream, there's a good chance it's going to get missed. I can tell you that when I look through Netflix and I see that little end next to it, it says Netflix original picture. There's a lot of times I've never heard of the movie and I'm curious like, oh, why didn't they advertise this? This wasn't so bad. Like, you know what I mean? But again, that goes back to like, are we absorbing things differently because they're on stream 
which is part of our service that we're paying for, by default is our system askew, as opposed to going to the movie theater where we'd spend 30, 40 bucks and suddenly there's a monetary value associated with the film you're watching. Like, I'll tell you that Arnez and I went and saw Gemini Man. Oh, we went, yeah. We went and saw Gemini Man in the theater. And, you know, we had a good time, but it was a it was an $80 experience, right? You know, it was like uh-huh. $40 for the tickets and then you had $20 popcorn, you know, and all that stuff, gas to get there, everything else. It's an $80 experience and the movie didn't live up to expectations. We both walked out of there and went, <laughs> and we said that movie was absolutely horrendous. But had that movie come out on Netflix maybe we would have absorbed it a little differently. And I don't necessarily know if we both would have said that was a pass. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're looking at the investment, right? When you go into a theater, there's a monetary investment and a oh, commitment yeah. because sometimes you've already bought those tickets online. And so you have to follow through and watch this film when it's on stream. Like let's say project power. I, I watched half of it last night. I gladly put it on pause and I'll come back to it tonight because <laughs> you know, it's on stream. And so a much different dynamic that we're dealing with. And if, if Project Power doesn't pan out the way I think it's going to pan out, I'm okay with it. I have no qualms or no reservations in having watched it. Today, we turn back the clock. We reach back to a time where there was no social distancing, where life seemed somewhat normal, and there was no black hole of movies available to see both in the theater and at home. Hopping into our time machine. We journey back in time to a time when an egg beat out Kylie Jenner as the most liked image on Instagram, and when an old friend set the record for the most followers in a single day, when 18 years of commitment was met with a satisfying endgame, 10 years of Thrones was met with a thud, and 43 years of fandom was met with shrugs and dismissal, where we saw our first images of a black hole, where country and rap merged to become the most successful number one song in the history of Billboard music and where Perry and Swift became friends again. I'm talking about 2019. For this episode, we created a list of films that were released in theaters in 2019, which performed below expectations and are currently available on VOD or stream. Of that list, we selected three films to watch, review, and rate with our three-piece system of play, pass, or pause. Keep in mind that only one person who picked each movie has seen it. to bring you our feature presentation. Stuber, 2019, directed by Michael Douse, starring Kumail Nanjiani and Dave Bautista, available for streaming on HBO Max. A detective recruits his Uber driver into an unexpected night of adventure. I actually picked this one here, and if you are a big fan of Kumar, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I would say definitely go watch this movie. It's basically a kind of a action movie with comedy in it. So basically the action star or the action character, which is Dave Batista, you know, big guy there. He's a detective there and his partner's actually killed in the beginning of the movie there when they were trying to stop a drug lord. So needs to say he's trying to avenge her death, basically, or, or put the criminal behind bars there. It just so happens the timing when this there was going to be another big drug deal go down there, he had just gotten LASIK surgery so he can yeah. barely see. So hence the reason why he's getting an Uber driver to basically he drive him around. And of course, Kumar, his character in this movie is a very timid character. Basically, he's very pushy around. And you learn about that. A pushover. He's a pushover. Yeah. Yeah. You know, his boss does it. His his uh, business partner does it as well as the detective, Dave Batista, does it. But overall, the movie is, you know, without giving a lot of away, it's a simple 
plot movie. I mean, there's nothing big about it, you know, avenge my partner there. However, I think the best part of this movie is how the two characters get along. So in the movie, Dave plays a detective named Vic Manning there and Kumar, he plays a character named Stu. Well, majority of the time in the movie, Dave's characters call him Stu by the wrong name. He's calling him Steve, call him everything but Stu. During the whole movie, I, I think this is a movie that Kenny would like because of the fact that it does give a cake ending there that you, you want to see there. Uh, also, it does dive into some of the characters, which Dell likes. So Dell, you, I would say, would like this movie as well. But overall, I mean, the movie is really good. And the reason I picked this movie, because of the fact that it, I do like Kumar. I mean, he's a very funny uh, actor and he's actually a good actor. So you put those two together there, you know, it kind of makes me want to watch it there. I don't think this movie did that well at the box level for another reason there. I think I've mentioned this time and time again is that Dave Bautista, he's not a lead man at all. And I think if you watch this movie, you'll see how Kumar literally carried him throughout this movie there. I mean, he's got his action scenes, his big brawny muscles there, but he's not a lead man. And as much time as he had in front of the camera on this movie, you can actually see, you know, I don't know the man personally, but I would say you can see he's not that best or I don't want to say best actor. He's not that comfortable in front of the camera just yet. And I can see how movie producers want to put him in front of the camera to be that next big action star, but he's not there yet. When you were watching the movie, did you get a sense that Kumail was carrying Bautista throughout the movie? Or do you feel like Bautista had a couple of good one-liners on his own? Like he, he could actually, like in my spy, it seemed like he had some comedic chops. Like he could do comedy every once in a while. He just didn't have the power or the acting chops to carry an entire picture. So, I mean, yes, he had some, a few good liners there and then you, and that worked for him. But overall, I think trying to mix that with the I'm an action star with the comedy doesn't work very well for him. I mean, it worked in all the Marvel's movies because, I mean, he was in it for just a little bit. It would show him just a little bit doing a comedy scene. And they made the next scene was a fighting scene there. It's kind of hard seeing him as a lead, just normal actor, action actor. I mean, just seeing the previews, this looked like a real old fashioned throwback action movie, you know, right? Like the the whole buddy cop pictures, which for some reason just aren't doing as well. Like the nice guys look like that yeah, uh, nice. uh-huh. with Russell Crowe and, you know, like or ride along. Yeah. Well, oh, ride along yeah. did well. That one was a box office success, but the nice guys wasn't, which I was kind of bummed because I would have liked the nice guys too. I would have thought the whole thing would have taken off. But did um, those movies work though? I mean, were they good films? I thought they were good films, but I, oh, I would, okay. I, I would argue with you that I, I wonder if the audiences are, are tired of the buddy cop. Like, do you think they just, they just don't want to see these buddy cop movies anymore? Is it like the rom-com is this, theater worthy is no longer buddy cop. So, I mean, one of the reasons I think this movie probably failed is the fact that, you know, the producers should have changed up a little. Instead of having two cops work together as a team that, that don't match, they had a Uber driver, basically. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think it could have worked. I just don't think Dave was a lead character that could carry the movie. Is he the lead character in this film? He is. He's one of the leads. It's him or, and Kumar. Or is it Nanjiani? No, it's Dave. He's the lead character. But, so I mean, Bautista gets the most screen time is what you're saying. Yes. Because of that, the, the movie kind of lives or dies on his shoulders. Well, I mean, when you see the interaction, so he has a, a character that's his daughter in this movie and you kind of see the interaction with her as well as with his boss, the lead boss there, the captain there. You can see that he, there, his interaction with them as a actor just isn't quite up to speed. It sounds almost like My Spy Revisited. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, yes. sort of, because we saw My Spy first, right, before we yes. saw this, or before you saw this, and I haven't seen this film yet. I mean, I have to believe this is better than My Spy. 
I really do. Like, and Kumail's got to be, I mean, he's carrying the picture. The picture's got to be funny, I would think. It is. And, and is, well, is he Arnaz? He is. He's carried a, every scene with him, with Kumar in it, makes the movie. <laughs> I mean, literally. It's, it's Kumail. Sorry, man. I know you're listening. Sorry. I'm sorry. I I held back all this time, and I know Kenny saw me looking at you and making all these faces. Well, he's carrying him. I mean, he's carrying Dave throughout this movie. There. I mean, Nanjiani. He's a comedian. He's a funny person. He is. You know, as it is, and so him being a funny person on camera is great. I like also the fact that now he's going to be in the MCU, and he got all ripped for it, which is really cool being that he's going to be in the same universe as Dave Paldisa, who's in it for the same reasons. So it's kind of neat that these two guys had done a film before that became a thing. Um, One one thing that I want to mention, though, you say how he's a comedian, but yes, he is a a comedian. But the thing that that I like about him and and some other actors and actresses is that he's also natural when he's in the film, though, when he's being filmed. uh, It seems very comfortable for him to be able to, to do a scene and to have a funny bit in there. You know, Dave. Not so much. Not so much. It worked for him in the MCU, but to carry him into other films like this one and the other, you know, movie, go with the lone hero. Maybe, maybe, maybe they should just try him being the the Rambo. And it's hard for me because I, you know, I like Dave Bautista. I like his Uh history. I like his personality. And I, I do want to see him succeed as a star in a film on his own, but it doesn't seem to be the pattern that we're following here. Uh, well, they keep not, trying to buddy him up Nanjiani with is carrying up the, yeah, you know, you got Nanjiani and then you got a little girl in my spy, right? So, yep. I mean, if he can't pull that off, I'm, I'm not too sure what, <laughs> what hope there is left. I, I think he may be better off doing a action movie on his own. Just try to do an action movie on your own. Don't try to be, try to have somebody help carry you a little girl, a woman. Well, or well, he's got a, There's a ton of those though, and they all stink. I'm sure you could go on, like I'm telling you right now, I was flipping through Netflix the other day and I came across three of them where Bautista is just doing a straight up action movie and there's a bunch of nobodies in it with him or maybe a cameo from Bruce Willis or something. I don't know. Bruce Willis has gone the way of Travolta and Cage. Wow. You just, said Bruce Willis. Where he'll just come in. Wow. Like, I mean, come on, man. He's, he's, he's doing that now <laughs> where he's coming out and he's just showing up and he's doing the smirky thing. He's like, I'm Bruce Willis. I'm not going to have to act at all. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's, I mean, dude, come on. Good. Was it the last diehard movie? Dude, he, he didn't act at all in that movie. He just coasted through the thing, smirking through the whole thing. It drove me nuts. The movie was horrible. And it was terrible because the, the Die Hard before it was so good. Die Hard 4 was amazing. Live Free Die Hard, that was an amazing movie. And then so, the Good Day to Die Hard, he just, I don't know, something happened. Bruce Willis decided, like, I'm just going to cash in. Give me some money. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Kenny. So you're saying Dave is, Batista is not any good. Was he good in Marvel Universe? Cinematic Universe? Yeah, but- I love him in uh, the Guardians movies. I I would it. tell you, I would, I would tell you it's more than he needs to come out in an action movie. It's he needs to come out in a well-written action movie for us to really get the idea if he's good at it or not, because he comes out in action movies all the time with those strict directive VOD ones. And they don't even have like the illustrious Van Damme singular plot, right? You stole my brother, you killed my wife, you, <laughs> you know, kidnapped my daughter. You know what I mean? Like they, he just was going down the list going like, who could you take away from me today that I'm just going to get pissed off and go fight? He doesn't even get those plots. Like now, with- now has, <clears throat> I guess in that perspective, has he done anything that would make a film studio want to invest $60 million in a movie just for him? I, I think he's really good in the Guardians movies. Just, <laughs> you know, like- <laughs> so let me ask you this. I actually, you know what? I would like to see them make a movie about his character in the Guardians movie, Drax. 
That would be cool. Or make the fighter would... make the fighter too, where he's he's going up against uh, what's his name, J- Jeremy Edgerton or whatever his name was, Warrior, huh? right? Remember the movie Warrior? Yeah, yeah. Make a Warrior two, where now he's got to fight Bautista. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll make Bautista into the Drago character, and we'll just see what happens. There you go, <laughs> Arnaz. How's the chemistry between the two guys? I think the chemistry is great. I think the chemistry works very well. I just think when Dave goes off to be the detective, he can't carry it by himself in there. So there was a couple of scenes in the movie that they were fighting the two characters, Kumar and Dave were fighting that worked perfectly for both. I mean, I couldn't see anybody else in those roles. You know, they had a couple of one-liners, some good talking points in there that worked for, it worked very well. It's just that, when he goes off to be his detective by himself or he's talking with some other characters, his daughter in the movie there, and you're just like, I'm not feeling it. I just don't see that. That's not working for me. And maybe, maybe because the daughter in the movie could be his wife. I mean, she doesn't seem that young in the movie compared to him, but kind of gross now you think about it, but I was about to say, yeah, that, <laughs> that's like, pretty bad, like, man. I, like, Ew. <laughs> and maybe that's why maybe they, they could have had a different character as far as his daughter in the movie, but him and Kumar, their characters, I think work very well together. And I can tell they both played off each other's strengths there, you know, him being the big muscle guy and Kumar being little and, and just things they did, did very well together. But overall, they were the only two characters that matched very well. Mm. So, okay. I mean, even though I'm saying a lot of, I think, negative things about them, I, I wish both of them very success there. I think, I think, like Kenny said, Dave just needs to have better, well-written scripts or maybe, maybe better direction there or maybe some freedom. I don't know if he, he didn't get freedom to do what he wants. Well, take the but, big man trope, right? Look at Arnold. When did Arnold get to step out of the big man trope? Ooh, good question. Yeah, I don't know if I know the answer to that one either. I, I, I do know. Twins, I do. Kindergarten Cop. No, no. Uh, go all the way. I know the movie he did before. So he did a movie where he was a cowboy. I think oh, a the sheriff. villain. The villain. They, they, they uh, had somebody else speak for him. because Yeah, he, the villain. After that, he became successful enough to be able to actually add value or, or be able to say, this is what I want to do. I want to speak for my character. It was Commando. I think it was Commando. No, that's the big man trope. When did you're he saying escape? when did he move out of action? Is that what you're saying? Say when when did he move into a role that didn't require him to be a big giant muscular guy? Well, I tell oh, you, Twins. Oh. He was a big giant muscular guy. Yeah. No, but I'm saying if you look at the movies that I would say Twins is the one, right? That's the one that it was a huge hit. It was the chemistry between him him and Devito was amazing. He was funny, and I think that you know having. A movie written like that for Bautista is the only time that we're ever going to see if he can or cannot do it because everything that's written for him requires him to be a big muscular guy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it'd be interesting. Anyway, I digress. Thanks for kicking our dog, though. I know. (laughs) (laughs) What a a Debbie Downer. (laughs) Ow, that hurt. (laughs) Feel the energy in the room just sucked out. That's right. Like a vacuum. (laughs) Okay. Well, again, I mean, if you are a Dave fan or a Kumar fan, Kumail, Kumail, you can do this, man. Kumail, Kumail. Can I say K? <laughs> you know, I'm three penis up right now. I'll give this a play. I say watch it because it does have a lot of funny scenes in it there. Take it for what it is. It's a comedy action. It's kind of hard not to pick it apart, but it is what it is. All right. Now, I haven't seen it, obviously, and your breakdown of it is pretty much what I was expecting anyway. I still have to watch it. I don't know what it would be after I watch it, but for the time being, I will give it a play. And I am also going to give it a play because this is kind of a movie in my wheelhouse. Like It's something I would want to see. Honey Boy 2019, directed by Alma Harrell, starring Shia LaBeouf, Lucas Hedges, and Noel Chupé. 
Available for rent wherever you get videos on demand. A young actor's stormy childhood and early adult years as he struggles to reconcile with his father and deal with his mental health. All right. On a budget of uh, $3.5 million, this film only grossed $3 million domestically and a total of, including domestic sales, $3.4 million worldwide. And that is it. Based on that fact alone, it did not break even, not even close. And so that's how it ended up on this list. Okay. So let's go ahead and 3P this one up. Uh, you know, I'm going get- <laughs> to. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Honey uh, boy for the win. Yeah, yeah. I give it a play. Ah, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the sales in this case, pretty, pretty close to why. So written and starring Shia LaBeouf, go figure. Co-produced by Anita Gao. He wrote the by, damn thing? Yeah, he did. Wow. Uh, not based on a book either. Uh, directed okay. by Alma Harrell, who was made popular by for making Bombay Beach an international film. And then uh, the key characters are Shia LaBeouf, who plays the father of Otis. Old Otis, adult Otis is played by Lucas Hedges and young Otis is played by Noah Jupe. All right, let's get into this. Otis Lort, Lucas Hedges, is a movie star who has a host of demons that he struggles to keep at bay. He is a raging alcoholic, and after a bender and a car crash, he fights with the police and lands in rehab. Uh, He has to finish the rehab, or they'll put him in prison for the DUI. The film is done in two timelines, which is not at all confusing. I think the way that Alma directed this film, it made it very clear as to what you're seeing. And so it's done in two timelines, one being adult Otis's in rehab struggling to come to terms with his demons, the other being young Otis played by Noah Jupe, and his life living with his father, Shia LaBeouf, in a motel and making his way through the ranks of being a child actor. Uh, Young Otis's life is wrought with his struggles with his father, who is verbally and occasionally physically abusive. Uh, His father, a convicted sex offender and a former rodeo clown, kind of an interesting combo, is jealous of his son's success. The tension is compiled because the father cannot really come to terms with being his son's employee because his son is the money earner. His father does not work. And thus, he enjoys some of the money from his son. But his son, the way his son looks at it, is his father is his employee. And he makes that statement many times throughout the film. And that's part of the big struggle between the father and son. Even though the father is a large reason why the son is becoming successful as an actor. His experience as a rodeo clown and a budding star before his life fell apart, he's applying all of that knowledge to his son which is, you know, it's kind of an interesting relationship in that they need each other, but they're not quite clear as to how or why. And then adult Otis is the result of being a star actor. So at this point in adult Otis's life, he is a star, but of course he's riddled with memories from the past. He has a hard time reconciling with his relationship with his father, how he was treated, what he's become. And um, in the end, he struggles with trying to forgive his father for the life that he endured while growing up with him. And so that's, in essence, that is the movie in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it, especially with the way the relationships build and break apart. And there's a lot of other uh, relationships in the movie. There's a love interest. um, There's the ex-wife. There's the ex-wife's boyfriend that play a part in this movie as well. And so it does make it interesting as far as the interactions of the characters involved in the film. So the good, the good on this movie, Shia LaBeouf is, you know, he's just an outstanding actor. I mean, he's playing this has been washed up ex-con and trying to reconcile his life. He's a recovering drug addict and he's trying to raise his son in the world of, you know, acting. And Shia LaBeouf just brings so much life to this character. My only downside with that character is that 
we didn't get enough background with uh, the father. So the father, the, the only things we see of the father is how it relates to the son. But Labu, phenomenal actor. The bad is, uh, well, how do I put this? Why? Why, 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 why? Why would you write it? Why would you produce it? Why would you direct it? Why would you make it? I, I really don't understand the point. Like, thought, what was the point I, of this I, film? I thought he wrote the movie as sort of like a personal getting through his demons type thing. Like, no, no, there's he, supposed he, to be a lot of him in this movie, right? Yeah. I mean, I get that. That's what he was trying to do. But, you know, there's, there's a thing, right? It's called entertainment. And if it's not going to be entertaining, why are you doing it? You know, where is the, like Kenny says, where's the bow? And I don't mean a happy bow. Where is the, where's the time? Where does it all come together? Where does it, for the viewer, the watcher, me in specific, where do I, where does my light bulb go off and say, oh yeah, I get it. You know, it didn't happen for me. It's a slow moving film. I appreciate it because you guys know I'm the character guy. I appreciated the character development in the film. I appreciated the interactions and who the players that were in the film. But in the end, after having watched it, I just didn't feel like, you know, I just got stuck sitting here thinking, why? Why would you make this film? I don't get it. So how does this match up with a movie like Capone, where you felt almost the exact same way? Because you almost had the exact same feelings about Capone. Same thing. And once again, we have a tremendous actor in a film. But it, again, same thing. Why? I just don't get it. There's no point. But which, you, but which one would you say is a better watch? You've seen them both now. Ooh. You know, oh, it's, it's sort of like my best oh, worst movie man. contest. You're forced to pick one of these movies for the rest of your life. Welcome to hell. Oh, Big one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's a tough position. You know what, though? All right. So I'm going to try. I'm going to say if I if I had to watch one of these movies again, whether it be Capone or Honey Boy, I will pick Honey Boy. OK, so that tells me Capone is really bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. So there are pieces in the Honey Boy film. And like I said, it, it's an interesting watch. It's just I didn't feel I just didn't understand why make it. You know, what was the motivation and what were you trying to do? You obviously didn't get people to watch it because, you know, box office wise, it was a bomb. I don't know. I'd like to know how many people on Amazon have watched it. But I know as far as ratings go, it's, it's pretty, pretty far down on the bottom of the barrel. So, you know, if you're watching it, if you're a Labou fan, I mean, there you go. It's, it's shy at his best. All right. That's what I got, guys. Wow. Yeah, I don't I don't really think I have too many follow up questions. <laughs> I know. I mean, like for me, for me, Shia is a sort of must miss TV. You know, like he's that he's on my do not watch list. There's a couple actors on that list where I see a movie come out with them and I automatically just nope, not going to watch that. And I just cross <laughs> it right off. Sometimes you can get off the list. There was a period of time during. Uh, uh, was it 28 days and hope floats that Sandra Bullock was on that list, but wow. she managed to get herself off. And then I started watching her movies again. I would tell you that something phenomenal is going to have to happen for Shia to get off this list for me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing the previews for this and I was like, eh, it's one of those movies that if I'm stuck on a plane, they put it on, I would probably watch it, but to go out and watch it, it doesn't sound like it's something I want to see, period. Yeah, man. If they, if they put this thing on a plane for people to watch and they have no other choice, it's only to increase the alcohol sales. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So I would say this, do you regret not picking the peanut butter Falcon? Cause you were debating oh, between you, this and the other oh, one. Oh, you have no idea. <laughs> Wow. You have no idea. So I will say, oddly enough, I'm glad I watched Honey Boy, but I would have much rather watched Peanut Butter Falcon. And for you listeners at home, this was a real debate he had when he got to his pick. He had them both in his hand and he was sitting there going, I don't know, man. Peanut Butter Falcon, <laughs> Honey Boy is like, <laughs> and he wound up, he wound yeah. up going it. So he's got no one to blame but himself for this one. But, uh, you know, like we right. always say, he never watched it. It's not his fault. He took one for the team. Now, That's none of right. us have to watch it. That's right. I'm taking one for the team. 
that's my dedication to you folks who listen to you 20 people who listen to this program. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's button this bad boy up. I mean, obviously I'm a pass. Yeah. I sound like I'm going to pass on this one too. And I'm a pass. Sheila Booth is must miss <laughs> TV. Ow. <laughs> Suck it. Sheer. <laughs> Damn. Getting personal on this. Podcast. I know. <laughs> Brittany runs a marathon. 2019, directed by Paul Downs Calazzo and starring Jillian Bell, Jennifer Dundas, and Patch Dara. Available for streaming on Amazon Prime. A young woman decides to make positive changes in her life by training for the New York City Marathon. So this was my pick. It was a bit hard to watch at times, and the film does a great job of realistically painting what it's like to go from couch to marathon. It also <laughs> paints a very real portrait of how hard it is for someone who is struggling to put their life together and has such a fragile psyche when faced with challenge. Rotten Tomatoes has it about 88%, and it has an audience score of 87%. It's inspired by a true couch to marathon story of Brittany O'Neill. Brittany Runs a Marathon tells the story of Brittany Fogler, greeter at an off-Broadway theater who parties too hard, is 70 pounds overweight, and no one takes serious as an individual. Her roommate, Gretchen, is a teacher's assistant who dreams of social media fame. She visits a doctor to try and score some Adderall, and instead is hit with the harsh reality that if she is overweight, blood pressure is up, and if she doesn't change her ways soon, she could be in for a heart attack. In addition, Brittany is having difficulty being taken seriously by, well, pretty much everyone. She believes herself to be the life of the party, but the more she looks at herself in the mirror, the more she realizes that she is just not happy. Her roommate Gretchen, being her only real friend, and even if she is, she's just a good time Charlie, going gets tough, she's not around. Believing she must turn her life around, she decides it's time to get in shape. After realizing her ability to obtain a gym membership is outside the scope of her economic means, she makes the decision to try running. She gears up in the clothes she has and prepares for her first run. She tells herself, just one block, and that is how it starts. Her upstairs neighbor, Catherine, is always running and invites her to a running group. Even though Brittany detests Catherine, as she believes Catherine has the perfect life, she opts to go and encounter Seth, another runner who is starting from the couch and is trying to get in shape for the sake of his kids in marriage. The movie then takes us through Brittany's life and how getting into shape, eating better, can have a causative effect to help you break through your depression and help you feel better about yourself. As she runs, you are exposed to more and more things that have shaped Brittany's life and why she has become the mess of a person that she is. It has been just one broken dream after another to bring Brittany to this point. Plus, she's refused to let anyone into her life for fear of abandonment and betrayal. It's through her trials to train for the marathon she learns who her friends really are and what she needs to do to take control of her life. And the big question is, when setback after setback begins to happen, will she be able to finish her marathon? So for this movie, it failed to meet expectations. The movie, much to critical acclaim, had a budget of $14 million and the movie only grossed $7 million. The $14 million is what the movie was purchased for by Amazon Studios, and after a short theatrical run, it is a permanent fixture on the streamer. The movie was given a limited run but failed to garner any, any interest or support. Jillian Bell, while a recognizable actor, doesn't have the star power to drive a movie, and that was at least part of why this indie film failed to land with audiences. However, I believe on streaming, the movie has had some success, and like other movies we've discussed that are on Amazon streaming exclusives, Late Night, My Spy, over time, this movie will get its money back. There's a part of me that would argue Amazon needs to let this movie breathe on platforms like HBO or TBS in order to really garner some attention to reach more eyeballs. So for the good... Jillian Bell is really good in the movie. She does a wonderful job making you feel what she feels. Many times during the movie, I sympathize with her character. And in addition, she is a very compelling in her delivery. The actual marathon training and couch to marathon is a very realistic to the movie. 
having been an actual couch to marathon person, I can relate to everything this character went through. From the beginning of just trying to make it to the next stop sign uh, in St. Pete, we had a stop sign at the end of our road <laughs> and I couldn't even make it before I was gassed. To the running in whatever gear you had. She has on chucks and sweatpants when she starts. I had these Reebok basketball shoes and these regular slack shorts. I mean, it was horrible looking. <laughs> and to the running group in which you pair up with people and help you get through it. Plus the actual running of the marathon itself especially your first, is presented in a very real manner. Supporting cast does a great job of conveying their character roles. Each character has a backstory and is defined quite clearly. The movie is a single narrative that focuses on Brittany, but her circle is wide enough that you get to see the inner workings of everyone in it. I thought that it was a nice touch. For instance, Catherine doesn't have the perfect life. She's running to distract herself from her divorce and her past addiction issues. Jern is actually an artist dreaming of, being, of having his own business. It's these little details I think make the movie a, a much more complete vision. The bad. The, the movie is billed as a comedy, it's a, but it's actually a drama. Between the mild bits of comedy is an underlying narrative that is similar to that of a story about someone who has addiction issues. The story delivers one hit after another to Britney, and at times it's difficult to watch. It has those moments where you want to reach out through the screen, grab Britney by the, by the neck and yell, what's wrong with you? It's another cheapening soft blow by Hollywood to advertise a comedy but actually be a drama. Because they uh, don't think a comedy will sell better, so they just gloss over the fact that this is a drama. It's one of those movies in which blow after blow is dealt, including those that are self-inflicted, and you have moments of just wanting to turn the movie off, but can't because it's a train wreck and you really have to see how it ends. (laughs) Also, I'll say this movie's a one-time watch. I have no real desire to watch it again, but it was a very good one-time watch. For me, I I think you've pointed out, I think, everything. I'm just curious. So as the Brittany, I forget her um, actual name there, Jillian Bell. Jill- so I've liked her in a lot of other movies there. She seems like a very fine actor. So how does she do carrying this as a lead role? She's mm-hmm. great. I, I, I honestly believe that she's a fantastic actress and that she's pretty, pretty underrated. She does a great job of, because for most of the other roles she's been in, she's, it's been comedy. So she yeah. hasn't had to do anything that's dramatic. So for her to deliver the performance that she, she did, I was really surprised. I actually felt a lot of the feelings that she was going through. So I felt very compelled to the actress, but I just feel like, you know, when you say a movie starring Jillian Bell, it just, and it's in theaters, it doesn't have the star power quality to draw you in. Was there anybody else that, that was to draw us into the movie? Because I didn't, I didn't recall seeing it in the previews. If there's anybody else in this, that no, what- the only, the only other person that I recognized in the movie was, um, do you guys remember the movie get out? Do you remember the guy that works for the TSA where he kept telling everybody, well, I'm just like you, I'm a federal agent. I'm just like you guys. <laughs> he was the worker for the TSA. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that guy's in the movie. That was the only other recognizable actor. I, I, I had probably another reason why it failed to land an audience. Because oh, okay. it's a, like, like we discussed earlier, it's an investment, right? So if you're going to the movie theater and you can go see the latest Tom Cruise action vehicle, or you can see Jillian Bell try and run a marathon, you're going to pick the Tom Cruise action vehicle, right? Because that's the sure bet. And unfortunately, the movie theaters have gotten to a point where it's so expensive to take a chance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in the past, you could take a chance and see something like, you know, Black Widow or, or uh, Terms of Endearment or something like that. Some movie that outside, outside your comfort zone that you would normally not normally see. This but movie th- isn't one of them. Well, not only that, but a lot of dramas have been letting us down lately. It's not as consistent as a Tom Cruise movie or something to that effect. But didn't they gear this movie more toward the lady side of the house or feminine side of the house there to say it's a... So is it listed as a drama or a comedy or both? So it's listed as a comedy and it's advertised as a comedy. But I'll tell you guys, and I made this mistake with Dell with Palm Springs. It, it has comedy moments in it, but it is not a comedy. 
it is a drama. And so go into it knowing that you're going to see a lot of crying. You're going to see a lot of moments of Brittany just falling down. And, and I, it is a really fair comparison that her addiction is essentially failure. Mm. She can't seem to get out of her own shell to, to make her dreams come true, to get to, to write her life. And I would argue that I am one of those people that had reached the point in my life where I felt very damaged and couldn't do any right. And your, your psyche is pretty fragile. You know, I mean, the, the littlest thing that goes wrong blows up in your head to the point where you're like, well, I guess it's over. That's it. Not going to make it now. And it takes a lot of fortitude to pick yourself back up and say, I'm going to keep going. I know I screwed up. I know I had this problem or that problem, but I'm going to keep going anyway. And so that's, that's where Brittany is. Her, you know, her slip, you know, or, you know, like if she, you know, went all of a sudden one night went out and had a bender is her failure to meet her, meet, meet the expectations necessary to put her life back together. Is there a uh, 80s montage in there somewhere? There's a couple of montages in it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, you know, I like the 80s montage riff. Yeah, it's good stuff. So as far as the film goes, though, I mean, I, you know, in my head, I'm thinking this is supposed to be an inspirational film. Is it? Yes. Did you? I mean, I don't want to give it away, right? Because of the no, fact no, no, that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Because right. the whole idea is like, does she finish her marathon? And I'll tell you, I'm, I, you listeners at home, there's no guarantee she finishes this marathon. I'm not giving it away. There's a lot of setbacks in this movie for Brittany. So yeah. it's, it's, it's really, and that's part of the inspirational, the motivation, right? Is her just trying and then, you know, is she going to try? She tries again. Is she going to try? She tries again. I, I kind of dig that aspect. Uh, moments of funny, mostly drama. Okay. I'll, I'll tell you too, the, the way the marathon plays out, it does not end the way you think it's going to end. The marathon she's training for through 90% of this film doesn't end the way you think it will. Oh, so it's no pirate movie, no happy ending? I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. I didn't say that. I mean, I'll tell you that it, it was... Ha- it, for, for someone who, who enjoys bows on their films, this was an enjoyable one-time watch and I felt like I got my bow. It doesn't mean mm. that the person was successful. I'll tell you what, you got me intrigued. I'll say that much. Well, I'm interested too. I, I think if anything, it is a, definitely a one-time watch. So I wouldn't mind seeing this. I mean, I, I do like the actor, actress in the movie. I think she's done great in some other movies there. So this is one that I would definitely at least watch one time. All right, so let's 3P it up, guys. Now, for me, it's a pause. I say it's a pause only because of the fact that I want listeners to know that the comedy that they were advertised for does not exist. It is a drama. And so go into it with that mindset. I also feel like it's a one-time watch. And usually those I label as a pause. It's very rare I'd give a one-time watch a play. Okay. Well, I'm going to definitely give it a, a pause because like I said, I, I like the actress there. And I'm kind of thankful that you told me that this movie should be listed as a drama. So I can live with that. You know, if there's a few comedy scenes in there, I'm okay with that. But again, it's definitely a, a one-time watch for me. I'll pause. Yeah, you got me intrigued. There's enough in here, enough elements in here for me to want to watch a film. I will give it a pause because I will watch it, but it's not going to be a high priority for me. I'll get to it eventually. So what's higher, Wrong Missy or this? Because we're still waiting for you to oh, see the Wrong Missy. They're, they're both <laughs> in the same bucket, man. <laughs> They're both in the same bucket, but you guys both, they, it was a hard pass for you on the wrong Missy. So much different. I'll probably watch this first. <laughs> wow. Come on. Well, I mean, you guys didn't pass this one. So I mean, there's enough in there for me to watch. I give it a shot. I didn't pass the wrong Missy either. I yeah, know he you gave did it a it. play. He gave it a play. <laughs> I thought it was funny. And he gave play, it a play, play. He gave it a play. Motherless Brooklyn, 2019, directed and starring Edward Norton and also starring Alec Baldwin, Bruce Willis, and Willem Dafoe. Available for streaming on HBO Max.
in 1950s New York, a lonely private detective afflicted with Tourette's syndrome ventures to solve the murder of his mentor and only friend. All right, so I'll snatch this one up. Um, This is another one of my picks. So with a budget of $26 million, this film only grossed $9 million domestic. So they didn't even get half of their money back in, in the United States. And a total of, including domestic sales, $18 million worldwide, falling $8 million short of even break, of breaking even, which is, uh, which is pretty bad. So there's a reason why it's on this list. A lot of stars in this film. When you watch this film, you, you see a lot of recognizable actors and actresses. But I thought it was interesting that it's based on a book and Edward Norton took liberties on the book to write the screenplay. So Edward Norton wrote, co-produced, directed, and starred in this film. Again, I seem to be hitting a theme here. Uh, but no, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of recognizable faces in this film. You got Edward Norton, Bruce Willis. Uh, you got Alec Baldwin, Willem Dafoe. So uh, we got a lot of them in here. Uh, set in the 1950s, which was the big change that Norton wrote into the film. So set in the 1950s in Brooklyn, New York, Lionel Ezrog, who is who's a character that Norton plays, works for Frank Mina's, Bruce Willis, uh, detective agency. He has a tick, Tourette's, but his memory is extremely good, which is something that's not in the synopsis, which is what makes him valuable to Frank Mina, the lead detective of that agency. And that's kind of like the whole thing about him. Like he seems to be a nice guy that he's having Tourette's really upsets him, but it's his memory that carries him through throughout the film. Frank Mina is killed off after trying to blackmail the people that hired him. As a result, Lionel's life is sent into turmoil as a structure he'd been used to uh, begins to fall apart. And so Lionel is an orphan. Many of Frank Mina's people that work for him, they're all orphans. Being an orphan and being taken in by Frank, now Frank is gone and everything's starting to fall apart. Lionel dedicates his time to trying to figure out who killed Frank and why. And so he's not a detective, but he works with them and then he becomes one and he starts to travel down this rabbit hole of trailing people and finding scraps of pieces and watching and doing all this stuff. Basically, this whole thing in essence is a gumshoe film from beginning to end. It's an old style, which is what I think Norton was going for, featuring the least likely hero trying to accomplish the least likely impossible. The characters in this movie, all of them get their piece. Everybody has a role. The Defoe is not just there for candy, that he has a purpose in this film. Alex Baldwin has a purpose in this film. There's not a lot I can give away because it's a building movie. And so it's not a slow build either. Things happen uh, and they build on top of each other relatively quick. So it's one of those movies where if you step away for 15 minutes to use the bathroom or what have you, you are going to miss a chunk of information that you will absolutely need to know in order to follow along as the film progresses. In that aspect, the way that Norton adapted the book and the way he directed the film, it worked out very well. You, you, as long as you pay attention, you can follow along who the characters are, why people are doing what they're doing, the people in the background who are suddenly revealed here and there and their purpose and their role. And even give you little inklings of people who really don't have an impact to the film, but they have an impact to the lead character which is why we get glimpses into who these people are, like Frank Mina's wife, find out that she had an affair, kind of, you know, it messes with this guy's psyche. As far as Norton goes playing Lionel, he does have Tourette's. And I think Norton does a pretty good job. We're not talking about Primal Fear, where he played bipolar schizophrenic. Yeah, that's... I think there was it. That's my, was fa- it. That's my favorite role with him, too. That's the Richard Gere movie. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So you, you know how just incredible he was in that film. So it's not yeah. that. I think it was a lot more muted down on purpose. He's not supposed to be so far gone that he can't function. In, in, all, in all respects, he's a normal person. He just has moments of Tourette's that he sometimes can and sometimes cannot control. Norton does well with the character as he does with most of his characters and uh, pulls off a pretty good film in the end. The good acting, 
character development, the story itself, being that it's a gumshoe film, does the mystery work well? Yes, it absolutely does. I could not guess the ending, which was very pleasing for me to not be able to figure out what was going to happen in the end. A lot of twists, a lot of turns. And so it does keep you entertained and keep you watching. The bad. I don't know if Ed, if Norton was the right guy for the role. I would have probably preferred a more lesser known actor to play that role. I don't know if he could have pulled it off, but it would have been nicer because nowadays when I see Norton, I see Norton and I have a hard time not seeing Norton. And so for me, it wasn't so much of a role that it required somebody like Norton. It could have been anybody. And being that it was a gumshoe, a relatively unknown person, I think having a more unknown actor would have worked out a lot better for the film. Also with the bad, it seems super heavy on the cast of stars. I definitely didn't need to go that far. Some of these guys is like mooring up a, a battleship on a Coast Guard pier. You know, it's just kind of wacky. <laughs> as far as the actors that are in this film, it's great to see great actors doing these kinds of roles. But at the same time, I think like as we saw in the, the usual suspects, having a host of not so well-known actors playing these roles probably would have made it a lot better for me to watch. Because, you know, these people in these movies, it, you know, when I see these big headliner Defoe, Baldwin and whatnot, it, it's hard for me to get past that. It takes me too long to get past these actors in these smaller roles. I think it would have been better if they casted a lot of lesser known actors. The actress in this film is a lesser known actress, but she does an excellent job. And when I see her, I immediately uh, buy into the character that she's playing. So that would be my bad. So I was curious because I avoided this movie on the basis of the fact that Edward Norton is playing the hero. And I don't, I don't like him as the hero. I really don't. I think he plays an amazing villain, but I can't name you a movie in which he was a hero that was any good. I avoided this movie simply on the basis of Edward Norton. So I'll ask you this is it sounds like it's pulpish nor, which is in my wheelhouse for books, not necessarily for movies. Is the movie uh, an action movie? Does it have thrill? Does it keep you on the edge of your seat the whole time while he's trying to solve the crime or could I've fallen asleep? Uh, you know, just based on the pacing and the whole thing. Oh, that's a great question. You know, it's not that edge of your seat thriller. It is not an action movie. It, you know, it's a slow burn. So it's a thinker. And so with every scene, you're trying to piece together the puzzle that the Norton character is trying to piece together. It, is, is there any action in the movie? No, not really. Wow. No, no, there, well, especially not, not in the, uh, the same action category that we're used to, you know, when you're talking about like Marvel action or even the Stuber action, nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. This is all, this is all incidental action as it occurs in the life of Lionel. Is it Agatha Christie who done it type? That's what where I'm like say you can too, put yeah. the clues together. Yes. Yes. Okay. 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 I mean, I mean, you said Agatha Christie, kind of the Orient Express there. But does it keep you engaged though, as far as that you really did you want to sit there to find out who did it or what was going on? Mention that. Yeah, I mean, I can totally understand why this thing didn't do well in theaters. I think if I made the investment, did the traveling and roll, bought the popcorn and sat in a theater, I might not have liked it as much as I, I did having to just pop it up on the screen and watch it at home. Okay. I mean, for me, you're kind of confirming my expectations of the movie, which was it looked like a boring film. And that's what it looked like <laughs> to me. It looked like a boring film. I don't think Edward Norton is a hero material. I think he's a great villain. And then you throw Willem Dafoe in there, who I'm not a big fan of. I was kind of turned off at the whole thing. As a matter of fact, when I found out that Bruce Willis wasn't the main focus of the movie, I immediately lost interest in the film. Any piece in there you can sell me on that would tell me like any of those fears are quelled. I think that you're going to like the whodunit piece. I think that you're going to like it. I think the, the whodunit piece is it's put together well. 
It's not easy to figure out and very plausible. Any cool twists? We have like a Sixth Sense M. Night Shyamalan twist that we didn't see coming. So I wouldn't call it a twist. I, I would just call it, the, you know, as the movie progresses, as the as Lionel starts to piece things together, he does find out that he was wrong on a few things, which, you know, you're banking on that being right in order to try to figure this out. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, he's wrong. And then it goes on another track. I wouldn't call it a twist because it is a slow burn film. So it doesn't have anything like Shutter Island, which is also a slow burn film, but you get to the end and there's like this giant twist that you didn't see coming. No, I wouldn't say not in that impactful way. No. Okay. All right. Well, you guys got anything else? No questions? You look so intrigued. I can see the, <laughs> I can see the pulses uh, running up over here. Like, so I look big smiles on your face. Well, so, I mean. <laughs> let's go ahead and 3P this thing up. For me, this movie is a play. I did like it. I liked that it was something different, something that I haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, it didn't do well in theaters, but I, I think it's worthy. Okay, Wait. well, I mean, I'm going to put this on my list of movies to watch. I mean, it'll be my pause. I'm not against watching movies that don't have any action in there, but I mean, you sold me when you said it's kind of a mystery movie there, suspense or somewhat suspense in it to trying to figure out who's done what there. So, I mean, that alone, I'm going to watch it there. I'm not going to go out of my way. I mean, like you put it there, but I will end up watching this movie. I think if I probably, like you said, if I would have watched it at a movie theater, I'd be pissed off probably. But if I'm at home, I'll turn it on and watch it. Uh, I'm intrigued by the whole mystery portion of it. I'm curious to know too, um, you know, does this movie belong on streaming? Like, is, is it, should it have been just dropped to streaming straight out instead of going to the theater at all? Which I'll save for our discussion at the end of the, at the end of the episode, we can kind of touch on that with all of our films, but I'll tell you that uh, it wasn't enough to get me beyond the fact that I'm, I'm not sold on Edward Norton as a hero and I'm definitely not sold on uh, William Defoe in the movie. So I'm going to go with a pass. It just doesn't sound like my cup of tea. The Kitchen, 2019. Directed by Andrea Burloff and starring Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Moss, and Tiffany Haddish. Available for streaming on HBO Max. The wives of New York gangsters in Hell's Kitchen in the 1970s continue to operate their husband's rackets after they're locked up in prison. I will tell you guys, I saw this. I kind of cheated. I saw this movie in, in the theater in 2019. I didn't feel like this movie got enough love, so I wanted to review it here. It has a 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has a 69% audience score. It's based on a graphic novel by Ali Masters and Ming Doyle. The movie takes place in New York City's Hell's Kitchen in the mid-1970s. After their husbands are foiled during a robbery of a local liquor store and beating a federal agent, They are sent upstate to a federal penitentiary, at which time their wives Kathy, played by Melissa McCarthy, Ruby, played by Tiffany Haddish, and Claire, played by Elizabeth Moss, are forced to fend for themselves. They're friends because of their circumstances, but are three very different women. Kathy seems to have it all. The all-American family, she's well-respected in the community, and is generally considered the smart one. In addition, she comes from an honest family who has always refused any help from the mob. Ruby, married to Helen's son, Kevin O'Carroll, the head of the Irish mob, has difficulty being accepted because she is a woman of color, but she has ambitions to become more than what she is. And finally, Claire is a product of domestic violence and is fearful every day about what might happen to her. When their husbands are first sent upstate, everything seems peachy as Helen, the mother of the current head of the Irish mob, gives him some cash and tells him, hey, you're going to be taken care of as long as you need. But suddenly the money starts to dry up as the interim boss starts to have problems collecting. With no choice but to do something for her family, Kathy and the other two girls begin to take over the mob from the boys by making arrangements for protection and collecting payments on time. 
In addition, Claire meets and falls in love with Gabriel, played by Domhnall Gleeson, a mobster who just got out of prison. The three of them instigate a hostile takeover and assert themselves as the new head of the Irish mob in Hell's Kitchen. Through a series of deals, they even make a deal with the New York City Mafia to increase their hold and line their pockets. But the boys are getting out of prison early and none of them are going to take kindly to three women in their place. It's all setting up for a bloody gangster ending with a pretty decent twist. So I'll tell you the reason why this movie failed to meet expectations. The movie got blasted by critics, but it did fairly well with audiences. The budget of the movie is $38 million and the movie only grossed $12 million domestically. Failure for this movie is on several fronts. First, it's the casting of Melissa McCarthy. She's cast as the badass gangster lead, which I think is hard for audiences to swallow. There, are, there was some complaints the movie couldn't find a tone and stick to a style that would be consistent with the picture. In addition, most critics found the movie to be jumbled and difficult to follow. Overall, I'm going to go through the, the good here. Overall, I really love the story. While the gender swap crime story has a bit of hit you over the head with the way women are treated in a man's world, including the casting of Annabelle Ciora saying things like, the men always find ways to screw us over, the movie is still a really good crime drama. Its story is well thought out, watch, with a lot of great beats. I am a fan of the comic book, and I will tell you that even with the slight changes that they made to the story, I still enjoyed it quite a lot. In fact, the biggest issue with the film, I think, is the direction, but it still has some gritty Martin Scorsese-like feel in its spots. I also enjoyed the plot twist and found the movie as a whole more satisfying because of it. It's fun to watch the movie a second time and actually see the clues laid out before you knowing what's going to happen in the end. And my final piece of good here is Tiffany Haddish. She is phenomenal in this movie and plays evil badass better than most. While I know comedy is her bread and butter, I think she's going to have no problem making the jump from comedy to drama. She has a screen presence that is absolutely mesmerizing and is a total chameleon on screen. The bad. The movie does have some issues with pacing and a tendency to cram a little too much in certain spots. And the complaints about tone aren't completely far-fetched. I also had some issue with the comedy elements. While Goodfellas had some comedy in spots, the comedy was always colored with dark undertones. Sometimes the comedy in this movie falls like a gag. Melissa McCarthy. Despite the fact that we know McCarthy can act, and she's a very talented actress after her turn in Can You Ever Forgive Me, she didn't bring the heat necessary to be really convincing as someone ambitious and deadly enough to take over the Irish mob. In fact, she spends a lot of the time trying to lead the mob like a housewife, saying things like, he's such a nice boy, wouldn't hurt anyone, he's not to be touched. Nothing in that sentence is anything real mob boss would say. And she's always trying to reason with people in a way that she really needed to be more menacing. Not to mention that the vicious Irish mob guys would not just step aside to be overthrown, even if a good deal was presented to them. So a lot of the takedown is a little too nice for a mob movie. So what was this listed as a drama or an action? This one's an action, action crime. Was it, do you feel there was a lot of action in it or not enough? I thought there was a lot of action in it. I mean, it has... So one of the big reasons why I like this movie is it has all the same beats a typical gangster movie would have. When someone gets shot, you know, it's not like your action movie where it's like Arnold where he takes four bullets and keeps coming at you, you know? These are like Martin Scorsese hits. He comes up out of nowhere, bam, shot in the head, guy's dead. It's like that Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio death scene in The Departed, right? Coming up the elevator, the elevator opens, bam, he's dead. So it has that sort of feel to it. And the girls are really are moving in on the boys' turf. They're, they're making moves, they're taking people out, and when you bring in Domhnall Gleeson, you know, there's a whole sequence in there where he shows you how to get rid of a body. And so he's explaining how to carve a body up. And it's, you know, it's gritty, it's, it's real drama. I think where it fails is because you have Melissa McCarthy in this picture and they were like, hey, Melissa, do something funny. <laughs> and so she does something funny that doesn't fit the rest of the movie. And so you're mm. like, 
oh, come on, man. We were making progress. I mean, you have, a, you have Elizabeth Moss in this movie, who is the ultimate chameleon actress. We discussed that in, in The Invisible Man, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the woman can play any. That's where I think, you know. So, so McCarthy didn't come off as that, that ma boss. Know, that, that stereotypical ma boss where it's the, she's the mother figure, but she's mean. She's cruel. The men are afraid of her and they'll just do whatever she tells them to do. No, it comes across like, you know, everybody likes her because she's well-respected in the community and she's a good person. So they're all like, yeah, we'll do what you say because you're such a nice person. The mob guys. Yeah. (laughs) So she's nice. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird. I know. (laughs) So, I mean, like, the the guys that- I can see why you said that's the fail. Yeah, the guys that actually, there's a group of guys she's able to just convince to come on her side because they like her. And then when she starts making her move, the actual guys that don't want to be moved on, there were scenes in this picture where I would have told you in any other gangster movie, they just would have shot Melissa McCarthy on sight. Like, oh, oh, you think you can collect where, where we are? I don't think so. And bam. Yeah, and I mean, she, she's apparently the leader of the least motivated mob ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? What, what, what mob, what mob structure doesn't have capos that want to be in charge? But I will tell you that where she lacks the big screen presence, because, I mean, she is good in spots. She can act. But where she lacks it, the other people pick up. Tiffany Haddish for me, like, I mean, just from beginning to end, that woman is amazing in this film. And she doesn't do any of her normal comedy, you know, like uh, you know, like she was in what was the vacation movie she was in with the with the other girls. where They go on vacation where she's all about talking about putting the drugs in her booty. I mean, she oh, doesn't uh-huh. do any of that funny stuff. She's straight serious the whole movie and she's good at it. Well, let me ask you, did they even need McCarthy and Haddish? They needed, so they needed McCarthy in terms of like that role. I would say they didn't need McCarthy, the actor, but Mm. Haddish, the movie wouldn't be the same without Haddish in it. And I'll tell you, they changed the color of the woman uh, from the comic book to the movie when Haddish said she wanted to do the film. Uh, And I think it works. I think it makes a way better movie, especially with the twist. Okay. Oh, as far as mob movies go, where would you put this? It's no good fellas, but I liked it better than the Irishman. Well, that's saying something. I mean, the Irishman was long, boring. I didn't, I really didn't like it. (laughs) I, to me, this is one of the unsung heroes of 2019. Um, When I did my own personal movie awards, I gave it a place because I thought it was a very well thought out movie. I think I gave it the award best movie you wouldn't see in the theater just because it's an entertaining ride. And I really did like the comic book it was based on. Being that I've never read the comic book that it was based on, do I need to? No, it's a straight adaptation. You're not missing anything. Oh, okay. Well, I, I can totally get the, uh, the McCarthy part, uh, your, your grudge with her being in the film, especially if they didn't, if she didn't, didn't or wasn't allowed to just be that kind of mean mob boss character. Because, you know, if you, even if you're a dude trying to be in charge of the mob, you still got to be kind of cruel. I mean, these are guys that want your power. And, you that's, and that's why I said they gave it up too easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, but, you know, it's a gangster film. I can dig it. I, I actually, you know, until you started reading it, I totally forgot about this movie. <laughs> that's the way it went in and out of theaters. Yeah, I think man. Arnez and I were at the movies. We saw the previews for it on like one weekend. And we're like, oh, that looks interesting. And then by the next time we went to the movies, it, it was, was already gone. out of, yeah, yeah it was out wow. of the theaters. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's interesting, man. That, that, so that's really interesting. I, I totally forgotten about the movie. I do remember a couple of trailers for it. Um, when you picked it again, doing what we're doing. I didn't even bother to look it up until you just started talking about it. Now certain things are flashing back. I'm disappointed to hear that McCarthy didn't, didn't either did not or was not allowed to just let loose 
on being the mob boss, which I would have really liked to seen because I do like her as an actress. I actually would have probably, if I could remake the movie, I would have swapped her and Claire. I would have let Elizabeth Moss play that role of the, the badass taking over the mob because she could have yeah. done it. And I would have let McCarthy be the mousy housewife that years of domestic abuses led her to be fearful of everything. Well, you know, I'm looking at the poster. Have you seen the poster? Yes. So you could actually put the moss on top and McCarthy on the bottom in line with what you're talking about. And that would probably have made a better poster. (laughs) (laughs) Moss looks mean in the poster. I don't know if you've seen it, Arnez, but she looks mean. She looks like the boss or the muscle. (laughs) To me, that this movie, this movie was one of my favorites of 2019. I really did enjoy it. And I kind of feel like outside of the Marvel movies, 2019 was sort of a letdown year in terms of movies. Interesting. All right. Well, I don't have any more questions on that. No, I, I think you, I think they'll answer my question there too. Um, yeah, I'm actually interested to see this now. I mean, I don't know how it's going to play out. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see this movie. All right. So let's 3P it up, gentlemen. Uh, for me, it is a play. For right now, I'm going to give it a pause, but I do want to watch it. No, I'm going to give this one a play. I think I really, Kenny, you're, you, the way you spoke about it sold me. I think there's enough in here to keep me interested from beginning to end. I'm going to put it on my playlist. Oh, it's my most, is it coming up? My favorite <laughs> Movie of this list. I cannot wait to hear him talk about it. <laughs> Man, wow. That's All right. Oh, when you picked it, I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear him rip this thing apart. Okay. Wow, I don't know. Maybe he might like it. He might yeah. love it. Yeah, you know, I was really kind of scared he'd like it because then I yeah. would have to lose all respect for him in terms of movies. But it's all right. I, I, I have a good feeling he's going to rip this one apart. Hey, that, that's how the show works. That's how the show works. <laughs> Come on. Think positive. Charlie's Angels, 2019, directed by Elizabeth Banks, starring Kristen Stewart, Naomi Scott, and Ella Balinska. Available for streaming on Stars. When a young systems engineer blows the whistle on a dangerous technology, Charlie's Angels are called into action, putting their lives on the line to protect us all. All right, so this is my pick there, surprisingly. Um, I actually wanted to see this for a number of reasons. One is that uh, I saw the reviews and a lot of the the main actor uh christian stewart she did a um, little review of this movie a why it didn't do so well there and i mean she had some points there but now seeing it i think she's to blame for why it was so bad so let me go ahead and get out what, what was good about this movie elizabeth bank was in it i think she's a very good actor two of the original charlie's angels were in there uh jocelyn smith and kate jackson was in it patrick stewart uh he was in it as well as a list of other I think great actors. So it's got a lot of well-known actors that can actually act. This movie was budgeted at $48 million and it only made domestically opening eight, 8 million. I think up to date, it's up to 73 million, but that's after like months and months of being out. So why this movie laid this list? Well, a number of reasons. This will be the second remake of Charlie's Angels. And I think if they would have wanted to make a remake of Charlie's Angels, don't try to come up with the same kind of comedy slash action movie like the first one did the remake did make it something totally different and that's where i think this movie failed that you know if you look at some of the reviews there they talk about the script was bad you know the script was good it was decent the plot was decent it was a charlie's angels plot so i was okay with the plot i just think there was two characters in it that was just bad you know one of the things that if you read some of the reviews there you know they talk about how christian stewart she doesn't have the facial expressions to be able to carry these roles off as well as i think somebody put it in one of the reviews i read is the action isn't great the comedy if you want to call it that falls flat i mean that sums it up with this movie i mean it really falls flat as far as the comedy none of the comedy seems to be 
very well written. It's pretty obvious that the comedy is coming. It's pretty obvious that it wasn't off the cuff, that it was written for them. And then when you have a few actors that are not good at all, Stuart, I'm sorry, you're just not very good lead actor. It's pretty obvious that you, you, you suck at it, you know. <laughs> so she's on your do not watch list. <laughs> yeah. And when it comes to the oh, action scenes, oh my God. You know, there's some great actors that can do the action scenes and you can tell us them. I think um, Tom Cruise, great action star. I think Charlie Theron, she's done some action movies there. And you can kind of tell that it looks like her doing the action scene. And it's obvious that she works out at making it believable. Stuart, I don't know what to put it there. Awful. I mean, it's like going to a gymnastics class and watching somebody try to do some of the sports thing or the... I don't say courses, but do the balance bean or a floor routine there. Like they're very beginning at it. You know, you, you want to praise them because they're trying hard. And so I'll just say, I want to praise her for trying hard, you know, being an actress. I'm, I'm sure it's not easy, but it sucks. <laughs> and she's, she's just, I'm sorry to say she's terrible at it. And I think Elizabeth Banks wanted to put it as, you know, oh, guys don't want to see women in those female roles or the action roles. No, I do want to see them in those roles. Ilea Balsink, I think that's how you pronounce her name. She's Ella Balinska. Yeah, she's one of the other angels. Terrible, terrible. The only uh, one is that was going to be one of my questions, like because like Stewart's the one that gets top billing or whatever, but the other two girls were kind of unknown, and so I was kind of wondering, like, how did they how did they play out? Were they any good? But it sounds to me like so, you're about so, to tell us no. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell you the two. Ella, terrible. Just as Christian, terrible. The the new one, Naomi Scott. She was actually good, but she didn't have that key role yet as far as being Charlie. I think they're trying to, they were setting it up to be, you know, make more Charlie Angels movies there. She was believable and she's been in some other movies too. But with Christian and Ella, oh, oh my God. Their fight scenes, their comedy scenes just was not there. Even the movie as far as, um, you know, I, I can see why this movie failed because even when you watch the movie there, there's a few scenes in there where it's like, well, how did they edit this scene? It didn't flow very well. You know, you just had... One of the actresses, she just popped up in the scene, a new scene there. You're like, you going to give me some feedback here? You know, I mean, how did she just appear in this room? You know, it just they didn't show me how she got there. You know, you know, in some movies, you say they break into the door or come through the window or popping up, in the, you know, somewhere. She just appears right there. It's like, who edited this? <laughs> so, I mean, overall, I mean, like I said, the the plot behind the movie and where they were going with it, it's a Charlie's Angels. So it was OK. I think the actors, the two main actors in it, Christian and Ella, just sucked. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They couldn't carry the movie. You know, Christian and Patrick Stewart weren't the lead character. Neither were the formal angels in the that did the original angels there. I can't believe Patrick Stewart tied himself to this movie. Yeah, I, I'm not. Sh- maybe somebody begged him to do it because that's the only yeah, right. A minute, dollar bills. Um, but the overall plot was really good. I like how they went with the plot. I like how some things <laughs> ended near there. <laughs> I saw that, Kenny. <laughs> you know, Arnez, here's what I love. I love when you try to squeeze a lemon for everything. <laughs> it's I mean, painful, I'm, I'm, but, it, but it, it's I'm fun. I'm sitting here silent trying to, trying to figure out how long are you willing to willing to drag this on? How much you got in there? What else can you squeeze out of I, this? I don't want to put... It banks down for making or directing this movie. You don't want to put her care. down, but you, you don't want to put banks down. No, I don't because I don't think it was her. I think it was 
if she had if she was in control of casting the movie, okay, yeah, she's at fault. But if she wasn't and somebody else picked the lead angels there, that's where the fault lies at. So so here's I got a question for you. So this so going back to the second reiteration of the Charlie's Angels, uh, mm-hmm. was it Barrymore Diaz and yes. Lucy Lou? Lucy Lou. So what I liked about those films is they gave each person their own little piece of the pie. You know what I mean? So you got you got to know each one of them. It wasn't that one was featured and the other two were the backup singers. It was mm-hmm. an equal share of the pie. Did we get that in this film? No. So you don't even get their backstory of, you know, like in that series there, you had the one that was the explosive expert. You had the one that was the pretty face, but she was smart when it became the detective skills. And you had one that was just a, the badass and was the one who was just against everything here. You didn't know who was who It's like, okay, these are all just females. Mm-hmm. No one's the, the expert karate expert. And no one's the, you know, ordinance was, expert, you know, it's then, like, was this a reboot or was it a continuation? Reboot. It was a reboot. Oh, wow. Kind of so odd that they would just do that. So you didn't know anything about that. And I like how, without giving away, I like how they did the Bosley character. You know, Strahan, really, right? Huh? Isn't that Strahan? No, there's actually four, four Bosleys that you actually see in this movie. Oh, interesting. And so I don't want to give any more away that, but I'll leave it. There was four Bosleys. It was like, oh, wow. Hmm. Okay. So that's why I thought the plot was good. I just thought the, it was lacking in two of the actors part. Okay. I mean, you guys are going to think that my no watch list is super huge, but we've, We've managed to hit two actors in one podcast that are on that list. Kristen Stewart and Sheila Booth. You know, all I need is a Colin Farrell movie to wrap it up. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> that's uh, my whole list. So <laughs> I'll tell you, like, Arnaz, man, I, I was shocked when you picked it. I was shocked you actually watched it. And I was shocked you were willing to talk about it here today. I thought for sure at some point between now that you're going to be like, I can't do it, man. I just, <laughs> I just can't do it. So I, I'll tell you from my perspective, like I have no desire to see this movie. It looked terrible from the previews. It doesn't even look like it's fun because the original Charlie's Angels TV show plus the remake by Mac G were both fun. Yeah. And this had, yeah. had looked like it had no fun. I mean, what was the Tom Green was in the, uh, remake, right? Yeah, he was yeah. in the yeah. Chad, the Chad. <laughs> Everybody loves the Chad. So I was like, I saw this movie and I saw no expression Stewart as the lead. And I was like, out. So, <laughs> hey, I appreciate you watching it and confirming it for me. So I don't have to watch it. But yeah, like, I don't even need to 3 P this up. It's a pass. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, hey, I'm not disappointed at all. I mean, I have to agree. I mean, you're right. I, I, I think Stuart, I mean, this is the second film I've watched of hers in uh, this year or this, yeah, this year. And I would just say for the directors and the movie studios, stop wasting your money on her. Would Dave Bautista had made a better angel? <laughs> yes, he would have. <laughs> and you ain't going to put a wig on him. He would have did a lot better. I did not see that coming. He would have done a lot better. All right. I think you squeeze this lemon long enough. <laughs> let's tie this bad boy up. So, yeah, let's repeat this up. Kenny, you already said this is a pass. I'm going to tell you this is a pass for me as well. Oh, this is definitely a pass. But Arnez, thanks for taking the hit, man. Yeah, man. Thank no, you. No problem. <laughs> I won't do it again. She won't get a third one out of me. <laughs> Sorry. You know, there's only been. So of all the movies that she's been in and granted that Twilight thing made like a gazillion dollars or whatever, but the only movie I ever liked her in was this little known indie film called Adventureland with her and Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, that was and a good movie. 
It was a good movie, but she yeah. didn't have to do anything except play the, uh, you know, unemotional teenage girl, right? Yeah. Like she expression fit the role perfectly. Yeah. So I, I don't know, man. Like I wonder if if you put her in a rom com, would she be more accessible? I I don't know. No, like, she's I a don't dra- think she's, she's a drama actress. I don't even think she's actress. very good at a drama actress. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, she's got to do something, right? I mean, in Twilight, she was a drama actress and was very popular in Twilight. Why don't they give her those uh, straight-to-video movies that Bautista's doing? Just put her in, like, Havoc, Extraction, you know, all these god-awful films or, on Netflix. Or maybe that's what Bautista needs. <laughs> he needs somebody like her as the opposite so that it has him, lets him shine. Yeah, that's right. Oh, no. So he has all the personality. Here's my <laughs> idea for Christian Stewart. Change careers. I'm sorry. Change oh, careers. Holy smokes. You got the face. Find something else better to do because acting just ain't yet. And I can't wow. say that everybody is a great actor or can be a great I, actor. I liked her in something. It was something that she did something with Charlie's commercial with cookies or something. No, no, no. She was like a <laughs> Snow White, maybe. Oh, the Huntsman, oh, the Huntsman. movies. Yeah, Come on, I like them. I enjoyed them. Come on, I liked them. <laughs> yeah, because she good. wasn't. You didn't have her face on it the whole time. <laughs> you know, Charlize Theron was amazing in those movies, but she was awful. And, then, and on top of that, the second one of that of that series was just unwatchable. It was so bad. So I was like, but it's cool, Dell. I like the fact that you have some guilt pleasure shows. Because every once in a while, I wonder, is like, does that guy watch anything that's a guilty pleasure? Do you ever watch anything like? That just blows up, you know, like I just, where you can Whoa. just watch and go. Mm. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> I mean, pick an 80s movie. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it. Actually, no, I, you know, I just realized there was another movie she was in and she sucked at that. She was in the Flintstones. You just realized that? Yeah. And she, sucked she was at in that. the Flintstones? Uh-huh. Wow. How can you do, how can you do bad at that? I mean, it's the Flintstones. What well, who is Flintstones? You you have twenty uh, horse material. She Pebbles? I think was she? No, she wasn't Pebbles. Who was she? Was she's Fred's mistress? Fred's mistress. He's actually Kid- looking. Kittles. Was Kittles. Was Kittles. Kittles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just she's just not. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I hate to talk bad about an actress there, but yeah, she. That's what I see. You keep there. saying I hate to talk bad, but then you do. Yeah, that's right. I'm it's like that with all due respect. That's right. With all due respect. With all due respect. Hashtag no offense. That's right. <laughs> hey, hashtag no offense, but your podcast sucks. <laughs> hey, she's free to talk, you know, whatever. I, I just don't know what role she would actually be good in. Maybe like you said, drama, but she's not an action star. She's not a comedian. Move on. Moving on. Wow. <laughs> Woo. Blinded by the Light, 2019. Written and directed by Gorinda Chada. Based on the novel by Safraz Mansour and starring Vivek Kalra. Billy Barrett, Ronek Singh, and Chada Burris. Available for streaming on HBO Max. In England, 1987, a teenager from an Asian family learns to live his life, understand his family, and find his own voice through the music of American rock star Bruce Springsteen. Overall, this is a fun, fast-paced, nostalgic teen comedy with a lot of heart and message. The movie is the 80s teenage dramedy for the kids who never got to see themselves on the big screen. Rotten Tomatoes has this at 89%, and it has an audience score of 91%. It's 1987, and Javed Khan is a British-Pakistani teenager at the Luton School for the Arts in Luton, England. His life at first glance is that of a typical teenager. He wrestles with his independence, navigates the usual cliques in the lunchroom, and desires to date girls and struggles to keep his grades up. His parents immigrated from Pakistan along with his sister Shazir and cousin Yasmin in an effort to have a better life for themselves. His family clings to their, their Pakistan values 
with their father Malik as the head of the household. All money by everyone it flows through him, as do any decisions for the good of the family. Malik is desperately trying to move their family up in the world and has ambitions that his son will become an expert in economics and eventually have a better life than he can provide. Meanwhile, Javed desires the life of a writer where his words carry emotional weight enough to change the world. Despite his father's disapproval in what he deems a hobby, Javed spends countless hours writing in his journals and trying to come up with song lyrics for his friend's band. His family falls on hard times as Britain enters an economic recession. Jobs become scarce and Javed's father Malik loses his job of 16 years at Vauxhall Motors. Unable to find work as the unemployment rate skyrockets, the family fights to stay in their home and continue the life they've worked so hard to achieve. And to make matters worse, Britain's National Front march is bringing with it a growing racism, which protests against the inclusion of immigrants, causing even more distress to Javed's family. On the night Malik loses his job is also the same night of the Great Storm of 1987, and it's the same night an angry and lost Javed is introduced to the boss. Through the words and music of Bruce Springsteen, Javed gains the confidence and voice which helps him to, co- to overcome his obstacles and push himself toward the life where ambition and family meet. Javed's English teacher, played by Agent Carter's Haley Atwell, pushes Javed to write more and even enters Javed in a national competition. It starts to become evident that Javed is a very talented writer and will not be able to avoid the clash coming with his father over his personal desires. The battle over wills, over Malik's demands of family first versus Javed's self-ambition comes to a head in a dramatic conclusion to this film. So why the movie failed to meet expectations? Uh, it's another movie which received critical acclaim. The movie was made on a budget of $15 million and only grossed $11.5 million domestically, as well as $18 million worldwide. The movie failed to meet audience expectations because people didn't know what it was about. The movie is a unique concept, but not a unique genre. The trailers lean into the unique, a movie about a Pakistani immigrant family in Britain whose son finds his voice in the words of Bruce Springsteen. Studios have argued this movie should have been given a limited release in in the beginning in order to garner interest that would have led to more domestic interest in the film, especially since the movie has a staggering 91% audience score and is very much the feel-good movie it's billed as. The movie was probably never going to be a massive moneymaker, and to be released in August was a mistake. Had it been marketed better and released in February or October, this movie would have been a modest hit, making 40 to $50 million wasn't out of the realm of possibility. The Good. The movie is billed as the feel-good movie of the year, and this doesn't disappoint. The movie has so many feel-good moments that you fall in love and root for Jabba to figure it all out. I enjoyed it thoroughly and found all the characters compelling, and the movie as a whole is a really solid watch. Director Chada is the same person who gave us Bend It Like Beckham, so she has some pedigree and does a great job on this film. Taking Manzor's novel, Chada does a great job of weaving a compelling story of the teenager trying to fit in, find his voice in a world, and make a life for himself. Using the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen as a way to express Javid's own feelings makes for compelling cinema, and in many ways, this movie acts as sort of a musical. The movie is based on Manzor's real-life story, but many things were changed in order to make it more accessible to an audience, including the main character. But for the most part, the base of the story is intact. The nostalgia of listening to these 80s tracks and seeing the 80s on display, even if in England, is so much fun. For the most part, this movie is a teenage dramedy along the same lines as Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. It has the usual tropes, but stands itself out by giving us an outsider's perspective where someone is constantly looked down upon because of their race or religion. Also, there's a part of me that is a bit confused by the boss being completely over in, by 1987. His most popular album of all time was just three years before the time frame of this movie in 1984. And I never remember a time growing up in school where Springsteen was not cool. But many of the kids in this movie dismissed Chavin's boss love because Springsteen's time is over. 
And finally, I enjoyed the end where you see the real life tie-in and the real life Javed, Roops, and family. The movie has more impact being that it's based on a true story. The Bad. I'm kind of sorry I didn't see this in the theater as it has a great message and is a very entertaining movie. However, there's also a piece of me that understands why this movie only grossed $11.5 million. It's not a theater-worthy movie, which promises something so epic that can only be seen on the big screen. And honestly, this would have been great had it been released on the streamers. The movie is quirky. There's a dance number and some moments where Javid busts into song in an effort to overcome his own anxiety over a situation. So when I say the movie behaves like a musical at times, I'm not exaggerating. Oh, it's not a musical. No. Okay. Any part of this movie inspired by Freddie Mercury's life? It kind of hits some some of the same tones. Not that I'm aware of. I kind of thought it was cool. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos in which Mantor explained how how he came to use his story and how he actually befriended the boss. He wrote this book and then he went to the boss's concert. He's actually been to 150 boss concerts. And at one of the concerts, he was there to meet Bruce Springsteen as he was coming out. And Bruce Springsteen actually recognized him. And it was kind of cool because you get to see the whole thing on YouTube video because, I mean, Javid's actually, or not Javid, it, it's uh, Manzor is actually holding his video camera and he's yelling, hey, boss, Bruce Springsteen, hey, you know, like all the other fans are. And he's just filming, watching him come out. And you see the boss stop, look at him and go, hey, man, aren't you so-and-so? You wrote that book. And he's like, you read, you read my book? And he's like, yeah, man, one of my guys gave it to me. It was awesome. And so he comes over and like they have like a whole conversation and the camera's facing down at this point because you can totally tell that, you know, Manzor's like fanboying out like any one of us would do if we met our <laughs> idol, right? Like if I met Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not even sure I would be able to get a sound out. But, you know, like, but they're having this moment and it's so genuine. And he's like, hey, look, uh, you know, I just got option. This movie just got optioned and I want to, I want to make the movie of my book. And, you know, would, would you like to be involved? And he's like, yeah, man, sure. You know, here, here's John. Call John. John will take care of all the details. You get back to me. And wow. the you watch this thing between Chadra and um, Manzor, and you find out that the discussion point was we have to make this movie pliable for Bruce Springsteen in order to use his library of music because his library of music is is essential to the movie. Hmm. Hmm. You you couldn't have made this movie and say, well, instead of Bruce Springsteen, how about we use the Beatles? Like it wouldn't have worked because his music and his lyrics are what is essential to the movie. It's what Javed uses to overcome his own anxieties. That is really interesting, man. Oh, yeah, I know. So you definitely want to watch this for that. Yeah. Interesting movie. Interesting backstory. I think the, the real life person behind it is kind of neat as well. By the way, Kenny, nice job on pronouncing the names. Yeah, you ripped right through them. No problems. <laughs> Thanks, I, was like, I, was like, I watched at, a lot of YouTube videos on this one. I really enjoyed movie. it. <laughs> It sounds like one of those inspirational, motivational movies, the underdog tale, achieving dreams and whatnot. Is that, is there enough of that in the film or do we have to wait till the end or are there only points in time where we get a little bit of sunshine? Because a lot of these movies, they're wrought with hardships, right? Yeah, I would say that there are many little hardships that get overcome, which is why I said there's, there's a lot of happy moments in this movie. There's a lot of moments in this movie where you feel really good, like, he, you know, he, he has this moment where he loves this girl, right? He's been infatuated with this girl for a very long time. And one day they're at this uh, flea market. And while they're standing outside the little market, she's standing at the top of these steps and he puts on his headphones and he takes one of the boss's songs and he essentially sings it to her. And as he's singing it to her, the people are the older people, I should say, around him start to join in his song with him because they know the song. 
And so she's immediately infatuated with the whole thing and that's how they come together. And so it's little moments like that where you see him, you watch someone who doesn't speak up for himself, doesn't, doesn't fight for the things he thinks are important and doesn't take his own ambitions into consideration and then suddenly just watch each one of those shells break away as he slowly, slowly starts to climb into the person he becomes at the end. And you feel, you feel good. You also feel a little bit like you understand the family's point of view. I mean, this is an immigrant family, right? And they have, and not only that, but it's a caste society, right? They have a, they have a certain ambition that they want to have for their family. And that comes through pretty loud and clear. Especially with caste society. I'm very surprised that, that when did this come out in the theaters? Uh, I believe this came out in August. August. I'm really surprised that there's not more conversation about this film. I would tell you that it came out in the summer movies and this is not a summer movie. If this was a teenage dramedy and it was starring a cast <laughs> you knew, then you could release it in August. This well, I movie, think it, it also it, sounds like one of those films that they need to put on Netflix. Yeah. It would have been great if Netflix had picked this up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they didn't I, advertise very well then or they didn't market this very well. No, it was in and out of theaters super quick. And, but I'll tell you, man, that 91% audience score is, is no joke. Like I finished watching this movie, um, you know, and I was certainly inspired to go seek out more information about the actual person. And that's why I said I watched a bunch of YouTube videos just because of the fact I felt connected to the story. You know, like I, I was so impressed by the whole thing. Did you turn on the, the boss library there? I already have it. So yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> but that's why I was saying like growing up in the, growing up in the eighties, like I don't remember a time when the boss wasn't cool. And maybe that's, maybe that's a United States thing. Maybe it's because Bruce was so eccentric to our culture that another land like the UK, maybe Bruce had a shelf life, but mm. I, I don't ever remember a time at least before 1990 that Bruce wasn't cool. No, he, he had a perfect nexus, right? He had the, the Vietnam generation, he had the working class man, he had the mm-hmm. hipsters, he had the 80s pop pop culture. I mean, he caught them all at the same time. And then his his songs kept being used. They'd had that play called, I think it was Moving Out, uh, yep. that was on Broadway. And then he had uh, that hit song with the Tom Hanks movie, uh, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he just kept recurring. Now, there was a time in the late 90s and the early 2000s where he kind of faded away. But he made that uh, one-man show on Broadway. And I think tickets were ridiculous. They were like five, 600 bucks and selling Ooh. out, but you had to, you had to be super lucky to get a ticket. And that just went to show how relevant the guy still is today. I mean, nothing related to the movie, but you know, pretty cool. Well, man, I don't need to hear anymore, man. You, you sold me a while back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's repeat it up. Uh, for me, it was a, it was a play. I want to give it this a play because it does sound like something I'm going to watch and then maybe watch again and again. Oh, it totally sounds like my jam, man. I'm all about play on this film. 47 Meters Down, Uncaged, 2019, directed and starring Johannes Roberts and starring Ernest Riera. Available for rent wherever you get videos on demand. Four teen girls diving in a ruined underwater city quickly learn they've entered the territory of the deadliest shark species in the claustrophobic labyrinth of submerged caves. Okay, so yeah, I picked this movie. Um, So this movie had a budget of $5 million dollars. An opening weekend, $11 million. So it did fairly well and made his money back. As far as reviews, it got 40% of Rotten Tomatoes. I think overall, why this movie did bad, it was a, a follow-up to the original 47 Meters Down. I think the if you see the previews for the movie there, I think that's what drew people into it. The reason why it made it money back, because you did have a labyrinth of a cave system there 
you had a deadly shark or sharks. So it makes for it interesting and make, maybe some people want to see that. Um, if you're into the, I will tell you right now, it is on Amazon Prime. I don't know if people would consider it a B movie, but I consider it in that B movie category. So that's why I enjoyed the movie. The acting wasn't great, but it wasn't bad because it was underwater majority of the time there. They did have a decent sized budget. So the scenes are fairly good. The sharks look believable other than the fact of the sharks not being able to see because it was a cave system was kind of that kind of sucked. Additionally, you know, this kind of reminds me of an 80s movie. Unfortunately, the minority gets it. And it's like, you know, I'm like, well, I see this coming. He's going to die in the movie halfway through it. And of course he does. The red shirt. Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, if you want to see a movie with a bunch of screaming women in it, that's not very good for, I guess, the female aspect of it. But, you know, the women are just constantly screaming in this movie. But overall, I mean, it was, I think, a good storyline. You know, the acting was decent. Why I think it failed, it didn't have a lot of well-known characters in it. I think the only character... Uh, the actor that I know that's been around for a while was John Corbett. The the four females that go into the cave system there, I don't think I've heard of anything any of them ever done before. Cor- 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 Corbett's from what, my big fat Greek wedding? Is that right? I think she was, yes. No, no is it a she or he? Oh, he, he. Yeah, okay. Yeah. John yeah, Corbett. He, yeah, yes. so he's the dude from my big fat Greek weddings, or my, is that right? My my big fat Greek wedding. Yes, he's the he was the male that yeah. got married. Okay. Yeah. So he's, he's the, I mean, you'll recognize as soon as you see him, you recognize him, but everybody else you're like, I don't know who they are. I mean, like I said, they did fairly well. They did okay, but they're, I think they're still learning and growing as actresses. I mean, that's all I have to say about that. I mean, there's nothing else to say about this movie other than if you like underwater movie, you like shark movies, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so back, back it up, back it up. You said the sharks couldn't see. Yes. So basically somehow the sharks got trapped in the cave system there and like anything that gets trapped in some environment there they adapt and learn to survive so in this movie the sharks were portrayed to have no vision hmm. it's all of senses it's like a shark version of the cave oh well, that's a good or question. not the cave was it the descent that's the name of it it was descent yeah it's yes. the one where the, yes. the spelunkers where they get under there and there's like these things that have evolved into they can't see and they eat people and it's just, their senses have heightened so yes you're right because yeah. even, even in this movie the sharks have a a heightened hearing sense there and they, they found a way to disrupt that sense mm. they're, they're hearing there. So you have that. I mean, you have some scenes where I'm not going to say it was poor acting, but it shows you what people would do to survive. They don't care about anybody else and they will, they will rather everybody else die. And then you have this in this, in this movie. And it's like, okay, I can see that happening. So it was kind of realistically and because of somebody else being stupid and wanted to be the one that only wanted to survive or get out first, I think three other people died because of it. It was just like, wow, okay, you know. So does this movie have any relation to the first one? And did you like the first one? I enjoyed the first the first one as well. I mean, there was some scenes that I didn't like in it. <laughs> Why? Why? I mean, that it's movie, water and it's got sharks in it. It had one. sharks in it. But it's just the whole indie <laughs> the of that movie just sucked. Yes. Yeah, it just sucked. Yeah. The hallucination well, ending was just terrible. I'm not going to throw you a bone, Kenny. Tell you this ending was even any better <laughs> because it's, 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 how can I put it? When they escape, they go from a bad situation to even worse. I'm like, come on, give them a break. Jeez. <laughs> it was just like, and it was almost as if the director threw some of this in there to make the ending better or try to make the ending better. But it was like, you know, being in the military and being in the Coast Guard. I know what they did in this any scene they could not do to this day. 
it's illegal to do that. So I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but they can't do that. Sharks got all hopped up on cocaine. Hey, it might as well. <laughs> uh, if you're looking for a, an action or a thriller, this keeps you on your toes literally till the end. You're on your toes going like, please let him survive. Please, you know, you know, it's one of those. <laughs> I'm not convincing Kitty. I, <laughs> okay, Kenny, it's got females. Kenny has a look of suspect. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing, man? You trying to sell me on this? What's going on? Of the list of the movies, of the movies on that list I created, this was the one legitimate B movie that just exploited the fact the first one was well-received by critics, even though it was a terrible film. It made good money, so that's why I think they remade this one. Um, can't believe it made the theater and this made his yeah, money back and then say. some man it's like those deep blue sea uh sequels you know they just came up with deep blue c3 you know this i know i saw that one, pre- i was like what yeah neither one of those movies deserved to come in theaters like this this one should have gone straight to dvd this like this is terrible it sounds awful <laughs> it was better than charlie's angel how about that i mean that's not saying much right <laughs> you tore that movie a new you know like <laughs> <laughs> was this the most recent of the three that you watched, Arnaz? No, I watched this one first. So this was the one you were most excited to watch because it was underwater. Yeah, it was. It had water things in there. So note to self that Brothers in Armchairs podcast movie has to take place underwater. That's right. <laughs> what song was that? Right. I'm just saying, like, well, I'm writing our script. I got to make sure I know where the Brothers in Armchairs movie podcast, where our, where our bread and right. butter is. That's Which it. is why Aquaman is still the best superhero movie <laughs> ever made oh it was cool it was in water it, it was, was water. terrible but I'll all right I, I, and i apologize for terrible. you listeners out there that it, mine's just exploded i did not like aquaman but all right <laughs> in my biased opinion the best superhero movie made it was a good fun movie i'll leave it at that yeah, it had moments <laughs> wow oh all right arnez if you're done squeezing this lemon i am so i'll three this up i'll give this a play Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll give it a play. You give it a what? I'll give it a play. It's very entertaining. I'll watch it again and Well, again. that's a twist ending there. That yeah, twist I is thought for better sure than the movie. Yeah, I thought he was ripping it apart. It was going to be one of those things to be like, pass. <laughs> wow. It, oh. it, 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 it was okay. fun. It was energetic. It had some bad things Man. about it. But this is the I See Dead People of the Brothers in Armchairs podcast. <laughs> just, this, it just happened. <laughs> wow. It's on Amazon. It's a B movie, and I would classify it. What a what a twist! Give it a play. All right. Well, I'm gonna give it a pass. It doesn't sound like my cup of tea. Uh, I can't really see me ever watching it. Tell you the truth. You don't like the water, do you? No, I love the water. I love Jaws and movies like that. I just this does not sound appealing. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a pass. I'm gonna give it a pass too, but only because the way you sold it. Was that it stunk? <laughs> I mean, at no point during your thing where you're like, it was the most amazing. These awesome things happened. None of that. It was like, yeah, so sharks. <laughs> Guess what, Arnez? It's Shark Week, and I'll watch that. <laughs> Man. You watch this on top of that. Give yourself a break of Shark Week. So you learn about the sharks in Shark Week, and then you watch this movie. That's what I'm talking about. The Gentleman, 2019, directed by Guy Ritchie and starring Matthew McConaughey, Michelle Dockery, and Charlie Hunnam. Available for rent wherever you get videos on demand. An American expat tries to sell off his highly profitable marijuana empire in London, triggering plots, schemes, bribery, and blackmail in the attempt to steal his domain out from under him. My final pick of the day, 
So the reason why this film made the list, I mean, it barely released in 2019, but it had a poor box office showing domestically. Now, worldwide, the film did make a total gross of $115 million as compared to their budget of $22 million. So, you know, hmm. worldwide, it did come out as a success. success. Another reason why it's on this list is because it wasn't received initially. It wasn't received well because it's a Guy Ritchie film and the critics were blasting it for him just reaching back to the days of Lockstock and uh, Snatch. With that being said, I think in the end, if you like Guy Ritchie films, then you kind of know what you're getting into. Same thing with Tarantino, right? You kind of know what you're getting into. You know, that's the reason why it made this list. Screenplay by and co-produced by, directed by Guy Ritchie. So he was all in on this film from beginning to end. Matthew McConaughey, you know, host of characters. Matthew McConaughey is, is the main character, Mickey. Charlie Hunnam is Raymond, uh, the guy. He's uh, the guy from Sons of Anarchy, in case anybody recognizes the name. Henry Golden, Dry Eyes. He's going to be in Snake Eyes in 2021. Michelle Dockery, which we talked about earlier. She's the wife. And then uh, Colin, uh, Colin Farrell, Kenny's favorite, favorite actor of all time. Hugh Grant plays Fletcher, Fletcher, who has a huge part in this movie, and Eddie Marson, who's uh, Big Dave. So a lot of big names in this movie. Again, you know, I'll talk the last movie that I looked at, Motherless Brooklyn. They used a lot of big names in that one, too. But this one worked out a lot better. Big Dave, Eddie Marson, the ed- is the editor of the Daily Print tabloid. After being snubbed at a party by powerful marijuana dealer Mickey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey, he hires the private investigator Fletcher, played by Hugh Grant, to dig into Mickey's world and uncover some dirt that Big Dave can use to print and destroy Mickey. So it's all about Big Dave trying to get back at Mickey for snubbing him at a party. That's the basis of this whole adventure throughout this film. That's where it all starts. The story is told by private detective Fletcher as he recounts everything he has uncovered to Mickey's right-hand man, Charlie Hunnam, in the hopes of getting a large blackmail payoff. So he's trying to basically trade his information for money and a large sum of money at that. Fletcher is also pitching his story as a screenplay. So he's trying to sell it like, hey, this is blackmail. Yeah, but you're going to get your money and then some because it's also a screenplay and you're going to be able to sell the screenplay and make a ton of money. And so the film is Fletcher recounting the story of all of these players and how everybody is intertwined. And as he's piecing it together, he's also there's also side sidebar conversations of him taking liberties within the story as he would if this was a movie. And so there's a particular scene where Mickey is Mickey. The story is told that Mickey, you know, gets violent and he, he, he kills a person and whatnot. And then they have to backtrack it and say, well, hold on a sec. That didn't really happen. And oh, yeah, well, I think it's a better movie, don't you think? And so there's moments of that throughout the film as the story is being told. And it's not until toward the latter part of the film that we're all caught up in. And now we're at real time to finish off the tale that is being told by Guy Ritchie. As far as Guy Ritchie's films go, film has a lot of characters, each of whom have recurring impactful roles. So every character has a reason, all of whom are interesting in their own right and whose lives intertwine and magically make sense in the end. There's a lot I can't give away because if I give it away, then it kind of steals that that impactfulness of each character. But in classic style, this is more, in my opinion, more of a mature Guy Ritchie film. It is made in the same way that you saw Snatch and Lock Stock. It's just done better to me. Uh, so I'll go with the good. Film is interesting from beginning to end. Cast works well together, most especially the chemistry between Hugh Grant and Charlie Hunnam. Now, those two actors are probably occupy the bulk of the film. So the majority of the film, you get those two characters interacting. Hugh Grant is the 
private private detective trying to sell the story to Charlie Hunnam, who's the right hand man of the drug kingpin, and that's the majority of what we're looking at. Michelle Dockery, Pearson's wife, is a good tough lady as far as gangsters go. I think she fit that role perfectly. She's she's sharp, she's witty, and she has the right kind of strength to complement uh, McConaughey's kingpin character. And then, of course, McConaughey fits. It's kind of weird. I went into it kind of like, why is McConaughey playing an American in Britain being a drunk kingpin? And, but it worked out well. The story, the background story, where everything plays. And McConaughey is McConaughey. He pulls it off. It, it works out really good. Hugh Grant, he's the scummy blackmailing private investigator. That worked out really well. And Hugh Grant does not play these kind of roles. So for him yeah. to do this, it was really interesting to see it. And it worked out really well. The show stealer for me, though, and, and Kenny's going to love this, is the character of the coach played by Colin Farrell. Hmm. And just for the record, Colin Farrell is a, is a sub-character or is a you know, co-star supporting character? Fine. Sub, sub-character. Correct. Yeah, it's, it's when, he, when he leads a whole movie, I'm like, nah, this is going to suck. Ah, uh, huh. well, he's definitely a sub-character, but he does have impactful moments. For me, they could take this character and do what Ken would love to see is make a whole movie based on his coach character on his own. <laughs> I know Kenny would love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> Tied down and forced to watch. Yeah. So, so, so the coach character, he's a leader. He's funny. He's confident. He's mysterious. They don't reveal a lot of backstory on the guy. All we know is that he runs a boys center and he teaches boys how to box. And it somehow gets entwined in all of this stuff, which is really neat. So again, it's a Guy Ritchie film and you have to watch it just for the sheer fact that it's an English gangster movie. I mean, it's Guy Ritchie, it's England gangsters, it's complicated, it's complex, but in the same time, it's simple. So it's a really good watch in that regard. I think the storytelling is done well. And I think that it does give us back a little bit of that magic that we miss from Guy Ritchie films like Lockstock. The Bad, Arnez, this is not a film for tourists. You don't get to see Buckingham Palace and London Bridge and all that good stuff. <laughs> but you do get to see a lot of English landscapes and some of the Lord's mansions. So you get a little bit of that. So you get well, some like, tourists. Hey, that's touristy stuff. <laughs> I would imagine this being a Guy Ritchie gangster film. You get some seedy underbelly stuff too, like places oh. not to go. Or not. Yes. So, so you get mostly that. The so slums, bar, the slums restaurant? in England and those kinds of things. You get mostly that stuff. Um, then another, another negative for me, for some folks, this might be a slow burn when they compare this to other Guy Ritchie films. So it does take a while to build. It is a slow build. There is action in it, but it's not, you know, crazy American style action. It's Guy Ritchie action. It's quick, it's fast, and it's pointful. But for me, it played well. It's just that I can totally see how somebody would watch this and say, wow, that was a really slow movie. I can't believe it, you know, just drags on. And then of course it's a Guy Ritchie film. So lots and lots of cursing and a few racial jokes in between. But I think it's done in good taste. None of it is out of place. It's not derogatory for sheer sake of being derogatory. I think it works well in the, in the scope of the film. Did you like the, the fact that it's uh marijuana centric. Did you like the fact that that's the drug of choice they chose for the movie? You know, actually I didn't at first, but there's a lot of reasons why it sold. I mean, it could, you know, in essence with this film, it can't be anything but marijuana. It has to be marijuana. So I'm just a little confused. So what time period is it? Is this current time period? 80s, 90s, 70s, 60s, what? Arnest, to answer your question, it is a current, current time film, even though they're dressing a little older as far as the style goes. Um, which was a lot of Guy Ritchie trying to create a 
persona and image of these gangsters and people that are involved. Okay. Well, well, sounds interesting. I mean, that's the one thing I had. I was just kind of confused on what time period this was taking place that, but it sounds like something that, um, so it, 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 so it, in your essence, this is basically gangster just over in another country, anything. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about Guy Ritchie gangster films, so it's not like organized crime to a degree, like you would see in a Scorsese film or anything like that. Usually these are much smaller bands of criminals. Yeah. They're hoods, right? Right. Hoods. Perfect. In the film. And I'll throw this out there in the film. They use the word geezer a lot and that's meant as a compliment. So we use it to describe an old person. Right. Yeah. But in, 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 I guess in Cockney or whatever accent that is, it's a geezer is a compliment. So it's just meant to signify a gentleman. That's a little rougher. I like Hugh Grant like a lot. I, I was really kind of shocked. He kind of fell off the face of the planet and I don't understand what happened. Uh, maybe it's because he felt like he was typecast into rom-coms and he wasn't getting anything else. But I saw that man from uncle, uh, which I think might've also been directed by Guy Ritchie. And he, he was in that and he was fantastic. And I, I think old Hugh Grant is kind of cool. Oh yeah, so, no doubt. No doubt. So yeah, I mean, I, if he plays such a big role in this movie, I'm intrigued to watch it. I, I like Hugh Grant. I, I think if you say that, I think you're really going to like what you see because he is unlike any Hugh Grant that you've seen before. Wow. Now I'm interested. Cause yeah, yeah. like I think Kenny was saying, I just remember him in the, the those campy watch it, watch <laughs> it movies. They were good. They were I'm good. Not, oh, I'm not going to say they were good. Some of them were really funny. I enjoyed them there, but that's all I see. That's, what are you talking about? Like Notting Hill? Like movies yeah, like that? Love that Actually? That was funny. That was hilarious. Notting about Hill, boy. Love it Actually. Two weeks notice, four weddings and a funeral. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. That's right. But he kind of so, played the same type of character. So that's why I'm, I'm curious to see him in something yeah, different. Amazing so. character. Music and lyrics. Oh, I didn't say amazing. I said a good character. We found, we found a fan. <laughs> I never found a fan. And he was married to Elizabeth Hurley, you know? like I know, right? Hello. It was. I mean, that's better than never. Billy Joel uh, is his deathbed right now, knowing that he was married to Christy Brinkley at one point. <laughs> Uptown girl. That's right. Well, I was pleasantly surprised. And so it's sort of like a homecoming for me to, to see a classic style Guy Ritchie movie. But it's almost like he matured in that style. He grew in that style. And you could see it in this film. So if you guys got nothing else, let's uh, 3P it up for me. This is obviously a play. I think for Guy Ritchie fans, it's a must watch. And I think for any fan of just an interesting film, watch it. It's good. Okay. Well, I'm not going to say I'm not a Guy Ritchie fan. However, I'm until I see this, I'm going to give this a pause. I will watch it there. And then from there, I'll let you know if I upgrade it to a play. And I'm a Guy Ritchie fan. So I'm in the bag. I'm going to see it. It's a play. That's rough on me. Arnaz. you gave a play to the shark movie. <laughs> and you, you give a pause. Like Order and B movie. Some Guy Ritchie movie. <laughs> and that's rough, man. Well, I said until I watch it, once I watch it, I could possibly move it up to a play. <laughs> I will let you know. <laughs> It's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, before we get into the recap, there was a couple of questions I wanted to ask you guys as a whole. Now that we've had an opportunity to watch these movies from 2019, the first question I want to ask is, were these movies suited for the movie theater or should they have gone straight to streaming? Given what we know now, if they had released all these movies on streaming, would they be of the same caliber or better? For me, based on what we've talked about today on these nine films, I only would pick two that are theater worthy, that I feel are theater worthy. The rest. The rest would go straight to streaming, but honestly, if they went straight to streaming, I think they would have been received better. You know, I, I kind of have to agree. I, even though I haven't seen the rest of the movies there and I've just seen the three I've watched there, I would probably have one that went to the movies there out of my picks. And as far as some of the other ones there, 
I could possibly maybe see two others go to straight to the movie theater and the rest go to streaming there. And I'm with Dell on that. I think if the other ones went with the streaming, they'd have probably been received a little bit better there. But then I also know that a lot of them weren't marketed greatly. So I, I'm not sure if they would have been marketed, been able to market it better as far as this movie is coming out on streaming too. So I, it, it just all depends, I guess. I, I think from my point of view, what I see is the three movies that I watched, um, granted, I did see The Kitchen in the movie theater. I will tell you that none of them were theater-worthy pictures. There was nothing epic enough about those movies to justify an outing to the theater. I will tell you that I like going to the movie theater, so I'm more than likely going to see you know these, these types of films in theaters because, in the fact, I like going. But if I were talking to somebody and they only see one or two movies a year, and they say, hey, Kenny, you know, the kitchen, man, it's out in theaters. I was thinking maybe I might go to a movie. Do you think that's worthwhile to go see? I'd tell them no. Wait for it to come to video. And I'll tell you that all three of the films that I watched are video worthy. You know what I mean? They would be ones I would definitely recommend you to rent. They'd be ones I definitely would recommend that you watch on streaming. I would say given the amount of streaming movies we've watched this year so far since April, especially this being our 10th episode, we can kind of talk freely about the fact that all the movies that we've seen, I would tell you that the movies that I watched were better than most of the movies that we had seen on streaming with a few exceptions. I mean, I, I really liked Extraction with Chris Hemsworth. I thought that was better than these three movies. I liked Palm Springs. That was probably better than these, but I'm, I'm struggling hard to find anything else that we watched on streaming that would beat any of these movies, including like Scoob. I really enjoyed Scoob, but it's not any better than these movies. Well, and there again, you're looking at the best of streaming versus what is the okay of theaters. Right. You know, yeah. and so True. that that comparison is, is really relevant to the conversation at hand, you know. So of the nine, Kenny, which ones are theater worthy to you? So of the nine, especially seeing that I haven't watched you know, any of the others, I would tell you that the two that I would have seen in theaters would have been Stuber and The Gentleman. Those would have been the two I would have seen in theaters. And then I would have to tell you after I watched it, if I thought they were theater worthy, but I often feel like Guy Ritchie gets a bad rap, man. That, that King Arthur movie was good. That, that one he did with Charlie Hunnam. Oh yeah. I, I enjoyed all of his uh, movies. That was a good movie. So yeah, I, I think Guy Ritchie gets kind of a bad rap when it comes to domestic films. I'm not sure why they don't land better. What about you, Arnez? Of the nine, what do you think is theater worthy? I will have to definitely say Stuber was one. And like I said, I haven't seen the other ones, The Gentleman and then your, and I say The Gentleman because it, it does have a lot of um, well-known actors in there. And I'm like, you know what? I would definitely see myself going to see that one in the theater. And then possibly The Kitchen, because it seems like it could be a really good outing to get out from the house to go see. So, you know, something to say, I want to go to the movies. You know, it may not be a top 10 movie, but it's something that could be entertaining that I would enjoy. I wouldn't mind spending the money on. So I would have gone with The Gentleman and Blinded by the Light. And I say Blinded by the Light because I think that movies like that, it's, it's important that they still come to theater. You know, we yeah. need movies like that to be made. I, I, would, I would argue that those movies are still going to get made. I mean, their streamers are making them. I mean, they, they, I, mean I, I often refer to the rom-com genre, right? The streamers reinvented the thing. People still want to watch a rom-com. They just don't want to pay 40 bucks to do it. So what I'm asking is, is an 80s teenage dramedy or, you know, that's that 16 candles, that breakfast club movie. Is it important enough that it gets a theater release to you? And I still say yes. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Do you feel your standard is pretty much the same? Mine's the same. I mean, my, I don't think my standards change. I think it just all depends on the movie. And generally when there's a movie out or 
when the movie theaters are open there, if I don't want to, if I want to be entertained, part of that experience at a movie theater is going to the movie theater. So if I'm in the mood for watching some type of movie or just getting out of the house, I'm going to the theater to watch a, a hopefully a good movie. So would I be out of these nine movies? I think three of them I would have taken that risk and say, you know what? Let me go try to watch this at the movie theater. I want to get out of the house. I want to go get popcorn at the movie theater. I want that, that whole experience there. Three of them would have been, I would say, definitely say for sure that I'm going to the movie theater to watch this. Now, whether it's good or bad or I say, wait, well, it's another story. Man. Yeah, I think there, there's certainly a, a relevance for me, a relativeness between how I judge a movie. If it's coming to stream and I'm paying $5.99 for the month and it's an okay movie, I'll probably treat it better than the movie that went to the theater. And I paid, you know, $25 and another $15 for popcorn and I'll probably judge it harsher than I would. So it's, it's a tough conversation. I mean, it really is. There's so many variables within that dynamic when we talk about movies from the theater, movies on the stream. But, you know, from the list that we looked at today, these are the lists of movies that did not do well in theaters. And of these films, I can tell you of these films, if some of these films had come out right now, headlining on Amazon or on Netflix, uh, it would be huge. It'd be a huge show. People would be talking about it on par with The Old Guard and Extraction. I kind of echo what you're saying, Dell, just because of the fact that I feel the same way. I feel like while I am an avid moviegoer, it's something that I go out of my way to do and I will see bad movies in a movie theater. I do judge them way harsher because of the experience and the monetary, you know, the economic oh, means we, yeah. Yeah, that we, we go to do it. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's just hard. You know, you're going to spend 40 bucks to see something and you kind of want it to be good. When you go home and you watch something that you're paying, like you said, you know, I'm on Disney plus, I'm paying $4.99 a month for a movie comes out, shows up on the streamer. If it's just okay, I'm probably going to like it. Probably going to say, yeah, like the babysitter on the Netflix, on Netflix. It's a Mac G movie. I love the babysitter. It's one of my, it's, I will tell you, it is my favorite Netflix movie, probably second only to extraction. But, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to watch too. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> I would, but I would venture to tell you that like, if that movie had been released in theaters, I probably would have been disappointed. I'd probably been like, damn, man, that wasn't great. What was this? You know, it, 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 I think it's just inherent in us that we assign value to, to cost. And I think that's just part of our culture. It's just how we are. We assign the value of something to its cost. Yeah, oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't I say mean, I with the exception be- of kids. No, no, no. Because the more they that. cost you, the less you like them. You know? Like, <laughs> I, oh, oh, oh. That's, a, that's a far comparison. Yeah. yeah. It's also I, just for humor, guys. I don't really mean it. <laughs> Kitty, I may have to say, I may agree with that maybe with the movies there, but I won't say that with everything because I can buy an expensive bottle of wine and it tastes like crap. I can buy a $30 bottle of wine and love it. I can go to, well, I haven't been in a while, but I can go to Disney World and spend $100 for a day. And I'm probably going to hate the fact that I spent $100. I stood in line for two or three hours to get on one ride. And I've, I spent maybe 15 hours of the park and I don't feel like I got my money's worth. I don't think you realize it, but you just, you just basically said the same thing. No. Yeah. I mean, I? It, yeah, you did because you paid for money to go to Disneyland. The, the wait was too long. The rides were too short. And so it wasn't a good experience. The same thing. I paid 40 bucks to go watch a movie. It was an okay movie, but because I didn't, you know, get it on stream for free, 
I didn't like it as much. Well, you can't go. You, it's not like I can, I can go to Disney World on video or anything like that. But you were the one that decided to make the comparison. You can't play oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on, you <laughs> yeah, made. Right, right. Like, <laughs> I did. I did. Okay. So I, I do get what you're saying, Arnez. But I, I think in the end, as just people, we will judge things based on value. We have to. It's how we something is significant or not significant. All right, guys. Well, let's recap our recommendations for each movie for the audience, and then uh, we'll wrap this up. So Stuber. Uh, play. Play. Play for me. Honey Boy. That was a pause. Pass. Pass. Brittany runs a marathon. I gave that a play. Pause. Pause for me as well. Motherless Brooklyn. I gave that a play. Play. And I gave that a pass. The Kitchen. I gave that a pause. I at least want to see that. Play. Uh, and I gave that a play. Charlie's Angels. Pass. I gave it a pass. <laughs> and I give it a breakdown lane pass. <laughs> Blinded by the light. Pause. I gave that a play. And that is a play for me as well. 47 meters uncaged. I gave that a play. <laughs> I give pass. Yeah, I'm also going to give it a pass. And The Gentleman. I will give that a pause. That's a big play for me. And it is a play for me as well. Well, there you have it. Nine films for 2019 that didn't do well in theaters. Do you think these theater films of 2019 are as good as what we're getting in, on stream in 2020? Hit us up on our social media to let us know your thoughts. Hopefully, for those of you still on the fence about a particular movie, these reviews have helped you navigate what's available. Don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us through email or our social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All of our information is available in the podcast show notes. You can email us online at brothersandarmchairspodcast at gmail.com and visit us on Twitter at broarmchairs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you catch our next episode in two weeks and keep an eye out for any impromptu episodes in between. And for myself, Arnie and Dell, this has been the Brothers and Armchairs podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Ciao. Aloha. Manzoor first told his story in his 2007 memoir, Greetings from Barry Park, a play on the title of Springsteen's first album. A few years later, at a London film premiere, he saw Springsteen. Suddenly he stops, he notices me, and he comes right up to me, and I've got this on video. The book was really beautiful. You read it? Yes. Oh, my God. It was really a lovely thing. That's, how did you know about it? Oh, I, someone sent me, I, people sent me copies. And, and you took so, the time to read it? Yeah, it was really, really... Fantastic, man. We should have a chat about that. I want to make a film of it. And that was sort of the opening trigger that made me think, well, if he likes the book, maybe there might be a film in it. When a young systems engineer blows the whistle on a dangerous technology, Charlie's Angels are called into action, putting their lives on the line to protect us all. And someone grabbed some paper and rattled it in front of the speaker again. So let me try this one more time. <laughs> I was just adjusting a little bit. What, uh-huh. mm-hmm. what, what, what? No, I just felt like you, it felt like that guy who had to explain the joke. That's all. You know, because oh. it's funny because he's fat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little family guy moment. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh okay, let me let me get the general on there. Forty seven meters down, uncaged, two thousand nineteen, directed and starring Johannes Robert Robert blah, Johannes Ro- Roberts. And let me try that again.
What's that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kumar. Kumar. 